The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the forum on the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This episode is a one-show milestone, as this is episode 150 of the podcast series. You'll have noted in the opening I said welcome to the forum, and that is because uh, this episode I'm trying to um, try out a new format for the show, and it's a panel show with some special guests joining me to talk about the latest news, events, their thoughts, ideas, and concerns on aviation, and any special projects or ventures that they're involved with. As the Wings Over New Zealand show started in 2011 as a spin-off from the Wings Over New Zealand forum, uh, and as uh, the panel show is in itself a forum, these shows with this new format will be called The Forum. So this is The Forum Mark 1, a prototype to see how well it flies. And if this format works out well, I'll do more like it and maybe have uh, The Forum show maybe once a month or, or uh, every six weeks or so. Um, so I really need for all the listeners out there that are listening to this, when you've had a listen, just write in and, and give me some feedback and ideas and suggestions and, and let me know whether you like this format or not. 
It's high time that I introduce my guests on the forum today. All three guests have appeared on the Wings Over New Zealand show before at various times, and they're all good friends and uh, aviation people that I respect very much. My first guest is a private pilot, an engineer, a home-building boffin, a Wings Over New Zealand forum moderator, an SAA chapter secretary, and all-round good guy, Bruce Cook. Hi, Bruce. Good evening, guys. And my second guest is an ex-RNZAF engineer and ex-RNZAF pilot. He's currently a pilot for Virgin Australia on the 737, and he's still getting his hands dirty as an engineer on projects uh, ranging from the Bristol Hercules engines to uh, miniature locomotives. And he's one of the few current Bristol freighter captains in the world. Al Marshall. Hi, Al. G'day, Dave. G'day. Hey, guys. G'day. G'day. Uh, and my third guest has been an airshow commentator, and he was the founder of the Ashburton Aviation Museum back when it was a society. He's collected warbirds over the years, including Harvards, uh, a Devon, a DC-3 cockpit, and he's even a former Fokker friendship owner. That's not easy to say. <laughs> <laughs> and he's an all-round enthusiast of old, old aeroplanes, Peter McCorders. Hi, Peter. Yeah, g'day, Dave. When I hear that back, it makes me realise how sick I really am, actually. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite confronting. G'day, guys. G'day, Pete. It's good to have you all on board. With the show, uh, we're going to uh, have a bit of news and a bit of um, banter and, and a bit of um, reporting of things that you guys are up to. So we'll start off with the news round. And uh, I'll just, I'll just uh, start off with a bit of news that, is really exciting for us uh, Warbirds fans, and that's in the past week or so, the KI-61 Tony has turned up at Ardmore. How cool is that? It's pretty impressive, really. It's um, Those things are absolutely scarce as hen's teeth, and it says a lot for our, um, our quality of uh, engineering here in New Zealand and our reputation that, uh, that we get these cool projects coming our way. Um, and I'm sure that... Um, since it's owned by Jerry Yagen, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll probably get to see it in New Zealand a bit before it goes back overseas. Well, let's hope so. And of course, it's been restored uh, by Avspecs of Ardmore, and um, they're world renowned for their restorations, including, of course, um, they've restored two mosquitoes to flight, and they've got another one halfway there. And uh, they've also done a lot of other aircraft Spitfires and um, the P40C and things like that. They're great. Great company, great bunch of guys. And, and of course, the Domini, which is sort of where Jerry Yagen sort of made contact with, with Avspecs, was uh, was the Domini rebuilt. So, um, yep. Jerry's had a few aeroplanes through Avspecs now, so there's obviously a really good working relationship there, which is really quite cool to see that, um, that they're sort of um, benefiting from that relationship. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's really good to see a, another one of these projects turn up there. And There's so much happening at Ardmore at the moment, isn't there, Peter? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I you know, just listening to that there and thinking about uh, what's been achieved and what's been turned out of Ardmore over the years and and the international uh, clients, the international clout that these guys have. And it's a bit like, I suppose, you know, the recent experience with the um, Emirates Team New Zealand in Bermuda there. I mean, here we were, a bunch of uh, people from the bottom of the world who were largely closed out of a lot of the things that were going on there. And uh, we took on, uh, you know, the Goliath, really, the, the big money, the big syndicates, the big names, the power, people that made their own rules. And we, you know, we we triumphed. And we're doing that at Ardmore on a daily basis when we're turning out these incredible machines for international clients. It, it is wonderful. And what's, I think, even even better is not only is the talent there and the product 
being turned out of the place, but they're such a hell of a good bunch of guys as well, aren't they? You know, both sides of the fence, the Abspex Pioneer, Wolves team and Paul's team, they're just great people. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. They're, they're a really um, friendly, welcoming bunch too, and it's really interesting how I don't think you'd find any other workshop in the world where you can just wander in, say day, and they'll, they'll let you wander around, take photographs and yeah. ask questions like that while they're working. So And cool under pressure. I mean, I'm thinking back now to you know, the first Mosquito and that air show that Peter Fahey put together and, and got myself and Ando involved in, which was where we first met up. And, uh, I mean, as you'll vividly recall, you know, it went right down to the wire, that thing. You know, they were still painting cowlings and stuff, you know, the night before the actual show. Uh, and, and Warren Denham, he was so cool about all that. The guy never visibly flustered at all. And, uh, yeah, I kind of admire that. He'd make a good 737 pilot out. <laughs> I, I remember that, that, that weekend um, turning up there to, to watch the mosquito fly. And I, I think the day before the public show was um, clouded in, they couldn't, they couldn't do a te- second test flight. And, um, of course, there's a whole lot of people visiting or, or would like to visit. And those guys made us feel so welcome. You know, we, yep. we sort of kept out of their way because they, they were still tweaking this and doing ground runs and taxi stuff. But um, but there was a barbecue on and a, a chili bin full of beers for us to keep occupied. And we we sort of kept out of their way. But um, but yeah, they were you know for what they what they were about to do. Uh, they're incredible incredible hosts. And and gee, you know obviously the work that they do is is amazing too. Absolutely. And with this Tony. Um, the uh, Kawasaki Ki61 Tony. Um, it's it's going to be um, really interesting too because no Japanese fighters ever flown in New Zealand. Um, we had a replica Zero here, and we've got a real Zero that hasn't flown. Um, but you know, this is going to be something really new on the scene as well. Oh, to- uh, not quite true though, because I mean, um, Tim Wallace had the um, Kate, or oh, not the Kate, the. Um, Oscar. Oscar down Oscar. there, which um, unofficially hopped off the ground during one of the um, Wanaka Air shows. Um, That's true. What, wasn't that a moment? Wasn't that just the most incredible <laughs> moment? Yeah, that was um, Simon Spencer Bauer sort yeah. of flying it at the time. So, um, so yeah, it's yeah, it's just some, such a different sort of whole experience when you start getting into Japanese stuff because um, when you think about it, all the mosquitoes uh, there is at least components of those floating around and quite a reasonable number of components around there's documentation the drawings and manuals and all the works for them this uh, japanese stuff when you start moving into the japanese side um not only are they virtually scarce as anything there's um there's next to no documentation um how does it go together short of um short of sort of copying things from from I say I see one one wing there is looking a bit nibbled at, so you'd sort of be sort of reversing the other wing to make mm. that panel up. Um, I note off Facebook that Wall is actually uh, was in Cosford in the UK the other day, and Cosford have got a KI 100 there, which is uh, essentially the KI 61 with a radial engine. And um, according to the photos that he had on on his page, he's been uh, having quite a good close look at that one, which would probably give him a bit of an idea of of the job ahead, because um, right. that's that's quite a complete aeroplane that KI 100. So. Um, so yeah, he's probably picking up some some tips there and having a good look at that while while he's over in the UK. 
Oh, fantastic. Oh, that, of course, makes it a tax-deductible trip even better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually do wonder about um, it might be better without drawings because everything will be written in Japanese, and I don't think those boys would be too keen on that. Well, odd you say that because um, back in my time in, in the trade when I was doing um, aircraft quality assurance stuff, um, we imported a well imported two Britain Norman Islanders from Japan, and uh, those log books that came with them were absolutely immaculate. They were beautiful. Um, even though I couldn't read Japanese, you could actually work out what was going on very well. Most of it, there was English phrases and things, but it was all done with little stamps and things, and it was the most amazing quality paper. It was sort of like a rice paper. And I think out of it all, I only actually ever had to send off one page to the local polytech to get translated because all the rest of it, you could actually work out the the, the details quite well. Um, obviously, probably World War Two. Um, documentation and things may be a wee bit different from modern stuff, but um, it's uh, it's surprising. They're, they're very pedantic about the, the details, so um, you'd probably get quite good detailed stuff. Right. I'll, I'll be curious to see how the um, how the engine side of it goes, because obviously knowing Jerry like we do, um, he won't be probably keen to put some sort of uh, alternative engine into it. So, um, yeah, whether they can get it an inverted Japanese V12 like that. Yeah. It'll be interesting to follow. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the, the sort of commonality there are between the Daimler-Benz engines and them, because they are allegedly copies of the Daimler-Benz. But mm, mm. how close a copy? Um, I'm certain that they probably wouldn't have had the the high-quality steels and, and, and materials that the, that the Germans had to build the Daimler-Benz engines in uh, wartime Japan. So it'd be really interesting to see the comparison on that. Yes, it will, yeah. yeah. It will certainly open some doors for people that um, can perhaps help with perhaps starting a, a reproduction line of those those type of engines because I'm, I'm sure there'd be a demand for them both in Japanese and, and German ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, um, moving on in the news, uh, something that happened a couple of weeks ago in um, uh, mid-June, uh, I think it was the 15th of June, it was announced that uh, uh, Safe Air at Blenheim is... Um, changing its name to Airbus uh, after, after the purchase by Airbus. So, um, how do you feel about that, Al? I know you're quite close to the Safe Air guys down there, and and you've worked um, extensively on the the preserved Safe Air freighter there at um, at Omaka. Yeah, yeah, and, and I was a Safe Air employee for two and a half years after I left the Air Force too. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's you know that's that's a big part of Marlborough, um, a huge part of their history, and you know, they, they've had their, their years of flying and then engineering. I think it's just a new chapter. Uh, it would be the same the same people, uh, the same yep. hangers, the same jobs. But, um, gee, for a company like Airbus to uh, to back them, I reckon that's, uh, I reckon that's, that's only going to be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree with that. Um, and we may well see more and more sort of Airbus stuff coming to New Zealand, I guess, after after they have got their foot in the door like that. Yeah, well, I remember when I when I worked for them, um, Des Ashton was our boss, and we used to get a weekly update. In those days, came around photocopies got sent around to all the all the sections, and um, there was all the projects that they were chasing, and there was you know, there was a page of different projects, you know, for oh, you name it. And and back in those days, the company would bid for work, and then if they got if they got the work, deal with it then. How are we going yep. to, how are we going to do deal with this? So they they used to tender for all sorts of stuff, and 
and then like I say, deal with it once the tenders were awarded. So who who knows what's going to come from that in terms of okay. jobs from outside? But yeah, no, it's 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 good. And and I know that um, from talking to people up there, that identifiable pieces of of safer history are being identified and and they will be preserved as, as such. So yeah, no, right. it's good. And of course, uh, Al's got the, the the big chunk of safe air history there at Omarka. It's the the new Airbus um, B one seventy there that he's got. <laughs> yes, <laughs> bless her. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That uh, that freight is pretty special. Yes, she is. Yeah, yeah. I'm heading up to yeah up to Omarka on the weekend. So um, depending on how what the weather's doing and whatever, I'd like to whip the covers off and maybe. Um, Give those two engines a, another run. We'll, we'll see how it goes, but yeah. Cool. Um, recently in the news, uh, internationally, there's been a lot of talk of um, banning of laptops and, and uh, you know, other handheld devices in the cabin. And I noticed that uh, uh, Simon Bridges, the Transport Minister of New Zealand, he reckons that we're not going to be doing that. So as an airline pilot, what do you think of this, uh, Al? Uh, today, uh, you know, those the airplanes these days are. Yeah, there's there's very little threat from from what what an airplane can do to you, short of you know, uh, you know, some sort of catastrophic problem. But, um, you know, if you've got 180 people on board, they might have 180 cell phones or, or laptops and stuff, and and those lithium-ion batteries, um, you know, statistically they they don't tend to, they don't behave badly, um, but when they do, boy, gee, they they can be um. That could be something that's pretty hard to deal with. I know our, they... our cabin crew are, are trained on fires that happen in the cabin, and yes. um, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel threatened with with just an isolated one. But yeah, it's it's when when something that might be in the hold that can't be dealt with. Um, yeah, those 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 batteries do fuel themselves. If they if they become a fire, they 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 do take a bit of controlling. So. Um, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, why are they why are they taking them out of the out of the cabin and putting them into the hole? Because the, you can't do anything about it there. Mm. I, yeah, I, that's I that's know. actually a that's actually a really odd one because uh, in my line of work, of um, we we get um, little uh, lithium, essentially watch batteries, the little tiny three volt lithium cells. And I was buying a, pat, a batch the other day, and I found out that. Um, uh, the main vendors that we've previously used to get them from actually are no longer stocking them in New Zealand because they're finding it's actually too hard to get them into the country. And these are just, yeah, these are for three volt watch batteries. Apparently, it's because um, they can't send them air freight because they're not allowed to put them into the hold. You can carry them in on your person, apparently, the batteries, but not in the hold. And I can understand that, but it's kind of weird. Um, but also in Australia, they have just um, had a rule change on sea freighting them even, that they have to go dangerous goods sea freight, and there's various um, restrictions on the amount that they can move. So uh, some of these various importers of batteries are saying, well, this is just too much work for us, and so we're not like, not going to import them anymore which is um, starts raising a whole lot of questions about our clean, green future that relies on all these electronic devices and uh, and things if you can't even get your three-volt batteries in. So it's a funny world. Um, but I, it is, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what, what to make of that, to be honest. So. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a bit murky. <laughs> you, you listen wow. to the, um, the the cabin safety announcements these days, and and I know some airlines put on their announcement that if you drop your phone down amongst your seat, get, yep. get a flight attendant and cabin crew to help you uh, find it again because I think people have had events where they've dropped a cell phone down somewhere amongst the seat cushions and the recline mechanism, it can um, can crush the phone to the point where it can catch fire. You know, it's, um, oh, wow. Yeah, I think that's, that's the, the basis of a lot of cabin, crew, uh, cabin announcements changing to say if you drop your phone, get one of us to find it for you. Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. It's pr- probably just the world we live in today that everyone has one of those those devices powered by these batteries that you know that need a bit of respect behind them. But but yeah, personally, I'd like to see all those sorts of things kept in the cabin where they they can be um they can be dealt with and and looked after. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Maybe maybe they should be collected at the door and uh, put in a big metal box. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Called a called a ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only will you be able to carry that? <laughs> uh, well, um, another interesting piece of news that's come out today uh, is that the Warbirds over Wanaka 1992 and 1994 DVDs have been re- uh, the videos have been re- released as DVDs. So there's re-releases of the classic airshow videos from 92 and 94. Uh, how, what do you guys think of that? It's kind of cool because it's got some of the the, um, the real favourite aeroplanes here, like the Sea Fury and the Venom and things will be in that. That'll be cool, kind of cool to see. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're historical documents themselves now, aren't they? I mean, history, you know, history of recreation is becoming history itself really quickly. And uh, yeah, I think it's cool. I've actually got a few of those VHSs on the shelf at home. I must admit I haven't dragged them out and haven't had a look at them you know, for a long time. But but yeah. uh, I, you know, I was actually up at the Air Force Museum at the weekend. I'd popped in there, had a bit of time to kill, and they had, um, I thought, that's a really good-looking tape. And it was one of the old Wanaka shows that was playing on the screen in there. And I you know, stopped there for a quarter of an hour and watched it and thought, oh, yeah. you know. So it is really good uh, to get yeah. to look back on that stuff again. It's like you know you get to relive it all over and experience it almost for the first time, especially when you've got a bad memory like mine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I collected all of those uh, tapes every time that they came out, and um, yeah, a lot of those air shows I never got to, so I'd, I would buy the tape, and I love them. I used to watch them yeah. over and over. I haven't watched any for years, but uh, no, I think it's really good that they've brought them out on DVD. And as you say, I mean, it, it reminds you of what was going on 20, 25 years ago, and um, we've actually, when you look at it, we've had a really vibrant scene for a long time now, and it really started with... Uh, Tim Wallace and Wanaka. Look, things are great now. You know, you look around, you look at a market, you look at Wanaka, you look at what's happening with the Warbird Open Days and the various specialist events and Masterton and what have you. And, and there's no doubt about it. We're, you know, we're spoiled today. But there was something really exciting about those early years, you know. And, and for those of us that have got a few miles on the clock, I mean, I can remember going to Wigram, that air show there, back in, was it 1985 or 86, when uh, what Tim Wallace's Mustang had been assembled uh, at Wigram and John Dilley was over from Fort Wayne uh, to you know oversee the reassembly and, and to fly it. And I think yep. Trevor Bland did then too. And I remember, and I can still remember saying to myself, my God, you know, how fortunate am I to see this? You know, that, you know, we thought it was going to be Harvards and Tiger Moths forever, which is great. 
And here yeah. we are. We've got a P51 back in our skies. You know, it can't possibly get any better. And then, you know, bugger me, it got a whole lot better <laughs> really quickly. And and to go down to Wanaka, there's something, there was something about those early days, you know, the 1992 and 94, etc. Uh, it was groundbreaking stuff, and it was just a magical atmosphere. Uh, and that massive marquee in the middle with all the trade stalls and everything and, and, and the latest new thing that had either just been brought in in a crate and assembled or, you know, and I remember going to see those polycarpoffs when they were all lined up for the first time and, and, and watching those guys and them all the well-known identities of the day uh, and I'm thinking, you poor buggers, statistically, some of you aren't coming back looking at these things, you know. And they just <laughs> they looked like a death trap to me. But, man, it was so magical, you know, and the magic's just got, you know, exponential, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, those were really, really special days back then, and and it really, it, it's it's just carried on. It's been it's been great, and we've got a lot of um, we've got a lot to owe Tim Wallace for what he's done on our scene, and it's it's great. Absolutely. So, uh, have you guys got any news? Because uh, that's about all. Yeah, I've got something which I just um, heard the other day um, via Aero Pacific Tauranga Spotter, one of the um, web um, the spotters forums. In Tauranga, um, John Pheasant, who is a well-known owner of a tiger moth there, has recently imported a project for a Thruxton ja um, Jackaroo, which, if you don't know what one of those is, that's a four-seat cabin tiger moth it's incredibly oh. rare um this one came in from an estate sale of a collection from uh queensland um i understand and so it's um it's they reckon it's probably about uh two to three years away from completion so it's going to be a long-term project but uh if you're into the um the classic and unusual light aircraft that's one to keep an eye out for Definitely. That's really interesting. Actually, um, John Pheasant, who you mentioned there, uh, is well known to us down here in, in mid-Canterbury because he was a key player back in the day when we, uh, well, we negotiated, we found uh, the Tiger Moth, which went on to become Ashburton's commemorative Tiger Moth, which we, we you know, when I came back to the museum here years ago, uh, and, and things were going along not too badly. The, the one aircraft that was missing was a Tiger Moth, obviously in the, the airfield's connection with the EFTS during the war. So um, we, we, we had a big meeting and um, we found this Tiger Moth. In fact, I found it. I answered an ad that I'd seen somewhere and got a guy called Peter Upton on the line and had a great chat to him. He was up in Kaitaia and um, he offered to loan us his aeroplane uh, and bring it down here. Well, I actually asked him when he agreed uh, if we could bring it down here for uh, a period of time because it would be easier to fundraise, you know, with it here than just as a you know something way off on the horizon. And so he willingly agreed. And then Les Vincent at the time, who's a great tiger moth and aviation man, he said, "I know just the bloke that would check this out for us too." So he got hold of John Pheasant. He rang him. Um, up and he was in Auckland at that stage, South Auckland. And John Pheasant at the time said, he said, oh, yes, he said, I know the, I know the vendor and I know the aeroplane and they're both really great. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll go up and annual the aeroplane because it hadn't, you know, uh, been flying for a while. I'll annual the aeroplane and I'll fly it down for you. And so that's how we got to know here in Ashburton, the name John Pheasant and a top bloke, and he did exactly what he said he would do. So, um, yeah, we, we owe him a debt of gratitude. He's very much a part of uh, that, that project down here. 
Yeah, great. Yeah, John, of course, has also got his Tiger Moth is um, Bravo Foxtrot Foxtrot, blue one with a big silver stripe on the side, which is probably one of the most immaculate Tiger Moths you'll ever see. It is an absolutely gorgeous machine. And um, so if the Jackaroo is going to be uh, of a similar standard, that's mm. definitely going to be, uh, be a nice one to look out for. And didn't cool. he also have a was it AIA the, the the oldest tiger moth in New Zealand too? Didn't he? He had that one for a yes, while. Yes, he did. Yeah, mm. yeah. He's he's been in tigers for years. Oh, very good. Uh, Peter, have you got any news? Uh, well, just around these traps down here, um, I was talking to Meredith Lowe, who's the um, he's the new president of the Ashburton Aviation Museum as of uh, May. And, uh, yeah, just talking about what sort of plans they have over there. Of course, the museum here is getting reasonably big and really reasonably packed out. There's been talk of maybe adding another large building onto the side of it. I think at this stage the the museum, from what I can gather, is going to go through a bit of a consolidation phase. Um, they're trying to identify some work that's been started and hasn't been completed and get that done and work that hasn't been started and needs to be done uh, before yep. too much else happens. They've got the um, replica control tower looking very good now. Uh, there's still a wee bit of exterior work, but you can certainly, you know, see what it's going to be like, and it's substantially structurally complete. Uh, there's a wee bit more metal in this one than there was the original, just due to, you know, various modern-day requirements. But I have to say that it really evokes uh, the look of that wartime tower very, very nicely, and uh, that's going to be a major asset for the museum over there. And um, also, um, we're sort of L29 capital here at the moment because... We have in the back of a private hangar uh, in Ashburton at the moment a, an L29 in several pieces, you know, broken down into production and joined sections. And that appears to belong to Jared Mulholland, who's um, uh, fairly well known down these parts. He's got a few, I think he's got the world's largest collection of tomahawks, fiber <laughs> tomahawks. He's, he's got a beautiful one that's in the same hangar that he's uh, restoring to flight. And he's, made a, he's a car painter, I believe. Um, by trade. He's made a beautiful job with that. But he's got this L29. What his actual plans are for it, I'm not too sure, but uh, I guess that'll be getting reassembled in due course. And across at the Aviation Museum, Rob Young, who uh, had the Soviet Star operation there, and I see at the moment is uh, keen to talk to anybody who's interested in these two remaining you know, flyable L29s. He had one, a third one that he reduced, and I think that might have been the one, Dave, wasn't it, that uh, overran it uh, at Dairy Flat, was that that one? I think it might have to been. To be honest, I'm not sure. I think it was. Uh, and and anyway, he, he he sectioned very neatly uh, the cockpit off it. And when he was setting up the Soviet star business, he built a beautiful big trailer and mounted this cockpit. And you would have seen it around uh, the air shows he had at, at Omaka yes. 13 and 15. Um, so he, I actually wrote, when I saw those uh, L29s for sale some time ago, I, I approached him. And he didn't, even though he lives in Timaru now, he wasn't really aware of the extent of the museum in Ashburton. So uh, anyway, as a result of all that, cut a long story short, he donated. He donated to the Aviation Museum, loaned it to them for a few weeks, and then I think he basically donated it, um, the cockpit section. And since then, he he found the, the rest of the plane behind his shed in Timaru, and he's donated that to the museum as well. So they'll be uh, putting it back together as a complete static uh, L29. So... Right. Uh, so sure. that, well, that and I think the other two yeah, potentially airworthy ones parked up at Harewood, um, Canterbury is the L29 capital of the, <laughs> of the mm. southern yeah, hemisphere yeah. at the moment, I think. Yeah, you yeah. often see those two other machines parked on the other side of the airfield in, in, in Christchurch, yeah. Yeah. And that, that actually looked great. I, I thought, I thought, you know, Rob, 
Rob did it. It was a huge, huge effort to get those aircraft flying and certified for what they were doing under the part 115 or whatever it is. And, uh, I, you know, for what it was worth, I really enjoyed that display. They did the pair of them at a marker. Was that 15, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 15. I think it was yeah, 15. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was, it was a great display. It yeah. was. It was. They're a nice classic-looking jet. So, And uh, what else have we got happening around the traps here? I think that's pretty much it um, as far as the museum is concerned. I'm still beavering away in the background trying to um, – I'm trying to be sort of like Tinder for ear, ear museums. <laughs> I'm trying to do a bit of matchmaking. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to go to my grave without managing to somehow um, play a part in getting a Corsair for the RNZAF Museum, and I'm, I'm working away still on that in the background. We, you might recall we had a bit of a – uh, a bit of a, an attempt uh, what, a couple of years ago now to get that, that you know, kit of parts that was for sale in the States. But it was a very, very tight time frame and there was a, there was interest from the museum, but we just weren't able to get you know, something together in time. But I think I found the perfect candidate for them. But uh, until uh, things are a bit further down the track, my lips are sealed. <laughs> well, I think you know the museum needs a course here. Yeah, they do. I know talking yeah. to Therese... Uh, it was, they maybe don't consider it the most important gap in the collection. There are other gaps, and I guess they are, you know, from the earlier era. But I think just in sheer, in terms of the sheer numbers that they operated, and the fact that you know, 424 of them, by far the you know most prolific, you know, numerically, uh, on strength, there's certainly, um, I think there's certainly a case for one in the museum. And, uh, and 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 as I said when I was having discussions with them, you know, the inter- the museum plays a very important educational role. Uh, and that's its primary purpose. But, you know, museums these days, and we can't forget it, are need to attract people. And they are as much about entertainment, aren't they? Let's be honest. They are as much about entertainment as they are history. Right. And uh, and we all know that the Corsair is a real show-off. I mean, it's a real show pony. It's, uh, there's nothing more impressive than standing alongside a Corsair. Um, there's just a, 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 an immense presence with those things. So, so yeah, I'm just doing what I can, and um, who knows? One day they may that may well work out. We'll just see where it goes. Yeah, and just to be clear for our listeners, uh, either overseas or who haven't been following the forum, uh, this museum that uh, Peter's talking about trying to get a course there for is the Air Force Museum of New Zealand at, at Wigram in Christchurch, um, separate from the Ashburton Aviation Museum, which he was uh, talking about earlier. So, yeah, thanks for clearing um, that up, actually, Dave. Yeah, thanks. yeah that's yeah. absolutely right. We're pretty blessed, actually. Both museums are only an hour's drive away from each other, and they're both very good yeah. museums in their own right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I I totally agree that uh, there's a big gap missing there with the Corsair because, as you say, that we had 424 Corsairs in the um, in the RNZF during World War Two. It was the it was the most numerical mm. aircraft type mm. that was flown, and it was also probably the most important uh, in terms of really taking it to the to the enemy up close and and uh, personal because they were doing bombing and strafing. All over the jungles of uh, Bougainville and all the way up to Rabaul. So, um, you know, and they were supporting the Aussie troops. They were um, doing all sorts of work up there, and they were escorting uh, U.S. bombers. And yeah, so yeah, very important time. And I think also uh, it's interesting that uh, sometimes you can't actually get one of the you know actual type that you had on strength with your particular air force but you know you've only got to look to the rnzaf museum the the p51 there wasn't an xrnzaf example um the, the the canberra was an aussie example but people still get an appreciation for the type by visiting those examples and i think these days it seems that museums 
Thompson also, this is what I'm picking up, they are not trying to pretend it was their plane by painting it up in the scheme that they had. Basically, I think, and this is what I'm gleaning from talking to people, um, you know, who are curators and what have you in some pretty good museums, is what we do is if we bring in an aircraft or an airframe that wasn't ours, we actually present it in the livery of wherever it served with whatever surface it served with, you know, and then we, you know, use it as an example like what we operated. And I think that's probably a more honest way of doing it. I know there was talk in Ashburton when we got our F-8 Meteor, um, the late Jim Chivers, a top bloke, he was talking initially about, you know, chopping it and changing the tail shape and to make it look like an F-3. And I said, well, Jim, if you do that, uh, it's not either an F-3 or an F-8, it's just a bastardization and he pretty quickly agreed yeah. with that and so that's why that particular meteor is still you know um, presented in its aussie colors and uh, right. so i think right. i think that's legit yeah i can see that in, in a way but then i think with the air force museum uh i'm not really too sure i'd like to see an, an american corsair represented there if you see what i mean because mm. we've, we've got a kiwi corsair that's flying and it's in american colors and that's bad enough <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll live with whatever you want, Dave. I'm, I'm okay. I'll, I'll, you know. <laughs> hey, I'll just be happy if they get a course here, and, and even if it's in just bare metal, I'll yeah, be happy. Yeah, stick it in primer. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I do have a piece of news that I forgot. It was over the page, but uh, I see that uh, from November there's going to be a trial starting up in Northland. Uh, a company called Medical Drones Aotearoa uh, have... Um, they're putting together this uh, trial where they're going to uh, be sending um, medicines and, and you know, pharmaceuticals uh, by drone from a central uh, bigger town to a place called Mitimiti on the coast where apparently it's so remote it's just really hard for uh, patients and older people to get in and out of there to go and get their medicines every week. So they're going to uh, look at using drones to take them their medicines I think that's actually a really interesting idea. I, I have read about that over in, in Africa and, and places over there with medicines and accessibility and stuff too. It's, uh, it is interesting. It's, uh, yeah. It, it, yeah, it does big how, exactly how, you know, what sort of airways they'll use or routes or altitudes and what have you. And, yeah, it's, um, you know, Amazon was looking at doing it with books and Domino's with pizzas. It, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, Amazon's doing it with books now. They've, they're apparently actually got a big trial running in Cambridge in England, and, and it's actually doing it. So, um, you know, and, and the, the, I was just listening the other day to a, uh, a podcast. I can't even remember which one it was. I think, oh, I know, it was um, it was the, the Airplane Geeks podcast, and they were talking to a guy from a, uh, Amazon there. And, you know, they're, they're designing all the drones and everything themselves. It's not even, they're not even getting a second um, party doing it. They've got it all in house there, so that's pretty amazing. I can see problems, Joe, with poverty and everything. You see a family-sized meat lovers Domino's pizza going overhead with a drone, and you get the air rifle out, and <laughs> it doesn't quite make it to, to whoever's credit card was swiped. So I don't know. As, as I think one of you guys was saying, you know, it's got to be pretty busy airways uh, above, you know, in, in, in urban situations with all these drones delivering pharmaceuticals and pizzas all over the place. How's that going to be controlled? Well, yeah, I mean, but I, I can also see, you know, being Northland, uh, you can probably see the medical drugs going to the little villages out, and then you can see the other kind of drugs coming back. 
Yes. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Food for thought, that's a changing world, and all the stuff that we thought was pie-in-the-sky stuff, literally, you know, is, is, is becoming reality around us. So, yeah, well, uh, the only constant we, we is might, change. We might literally see pie-in-the-sky soon because pie the, the pie sky. shops might start delivering. <laughs> Line of the night to Dave Homewood. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Al, have you got any news that you've picked up on? Um, I, I was chuffed to see the um, the, the second Avspex Mosquito flying in the states in the last oh, week. Oh yes. Um, yes. Yeah, very proud of what those boys have done and uh, and I am sure all of us would would happily go to visit the UK when finally in years to come one of their machines ends up in the UK because I've I've watched the Americans and how they how they react to seeing the mosquito. I can only imagine what the UK audience would do if, yeah. if they had one one of those machines over there. And I'm sure it will happen one day, but uh, I'd love to be there when it does. Oh, absolutely! It would be incredible. I think it would be very similar to when this, when the the Canadians took their Lancaster over there. The reaction they got there was um, phenomenal, and um, it reminded me a lot of when the first mosquito flew here. The the way that the public just um, embraced it, the way you know Britain really embraced those two Lancasters, and I think it would be like that with the mosquito. Oh yeah, 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 I do. I'm interested to, interested to know what you guys um, think about the next um, big, not big thing, but the next you know, major item of interest on the warbird scene in New Zealand. You know, often you hear discussion around fellows at air shows about, you know, what's going to come next. And, you know, I've often sort of said, and I don't want to be, you know, demeaning here, but uh, it's pretty hard now. You know, you see, I don't know, if some other, you know, V12 fighter came in that we hadn't seen before, are we going to get as excited about that as something, you know, different, like maybe a different proportion, a different shape in our skies. Like, you know, is it time, <laughs> you know, are we ready for something like an invader or a Mitchell or something, something that's sort of a bit different to, to mm. because we all know how complacent we get after we've seen stuff that were absolutely, you know, blows our mind. And you've been to five air shows and seen it. You're kind of going, well, that's fantastic. Now what's next, you know? And that's, that's, a, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a, like an, like an addiction that needs feeding, isn't it? It, well, it is, and people do tend to get blasé. I've heard, I've heard a few people make comments at uh, air shows. And I just want to slap them because, yeah. you know, I still, I still get excited every time I see the Harvards do their display uh, and 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 tiger moths and things because it, it, it's a real privilege to see anything being displayed like that at an air show. But I see what you're saying that you do get used to seeing, say, the Mustang, or you you, you get used to seeing the Spitfires because. You know, we've seen them every air show now, and it, uh, ten years ago, you you would be going, "Oh, I wish we had one of those." Yeah, but um, yeah, we, I, we, we don't tire of them. God knows, we don't tire of them. We we still uh, we still value um, what we're seeing and value the the you know the blood, sweat, and the and the massive amount of money it takes you know various people and, and syndicates to keep them going. So it's not a case of that, but I guess there's also that. Okay, what else could we add into the mix? I found mm. one, guys. I've saved you the trouble of thinking about it. I've found one. Platinum fighter sails at the moment. It's a 1944 Beach 18 or a C45, and what a nice, tidy-looking ship it is too. I've, I've you know, the conf uh, when they were the Confederate Air Force years ago in Auckland, they had that one that gave them a bit of trouble, but it got out to the odd show. But most people have forgotten about it. It's tucked away in a hangar up there. But Platinum, I see, have got one on the market at the moment that's got some good times and is a very robust, solid, well-maintained Beach 18. Uh, ninety nine thousand nine hundred and fifty American dollars. Well, you know, uh, still a lot of money for you and me. But 
you know, it's cheaper than a Harvard, really, and uh, and it has the potential to, I suppose, under a part, is it part 115, have I got that right, Al? Um, I think so. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, because, well, well, i tell you what I did tonight uh, before we uh, got on for this discussion. I, I uh, fed the link to Brett Nichols, who's oh, enthusiastic yeah. about everything to do with aviation, as we know, one of the greatest young, you know, um, uh, promoters of warbird aviation in, in the country today, and he, he's very excited about them too, and he thinks it would be a great thing, would have some great potential. So uh, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that perhaps, you know, um, three or four like-minded people could get together and make something like that happen and actually, you know, um, get their flying subsidised a bit under a Part 115. What do you reckon? Yeah. There's actually... Um when I went to Oshkosh in 2013, it was quite interesting to sort of see what are the other sort of um, less high-profile warbirds that we that are sort of out there and that are sort of bang for buck. And yeah, the the Beach 18 was a surprising one in terms of its um, how well they look. And I mean, you can have so many different um, amazing colour schemes, including a US Navy four tone and all those sort of things. So. They're probably quite a good bang for buck warbird, and mm, um, yeah. would really be quite good there. Other ones you could look at, think of just off the top of your head, um, things like the Grumman albatross. In fact, any of the Grumman seaplanes. Um, hopefully, we'll see a widgeon at some stage in the near future uh, in New Zealand. Um, yeah, the 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 Grummans were really good. Um, you find things like um, the Lockheed twins as well, um, Lockheed uh, harpoons and yeah. uh, lodestars and things. Yes. Um, they are quite a performer and they look pretty impressive when they're um, on display. So, um, yeah, there's, there's there's a bit of stuff out there. As I say, B-25s, that's one thing that we haven't seen in New Zealand um, before, but uh, B-25s, they're quite common over in the States. Once again, quite affordable and relatively easy to run and operate, and uh, they certainly look impressive. They they make lots of noise and lots of smoke on startup and stuff like that. All the good stuff. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, these are sort of sort of lesser known warbirds, which are, could actually be sort of really um, yeah good bang for buck warbirds, really. Yeah, well, um, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see if somebody does, you know, or, yeah. or a group of people. It's just nice to sow, you know to sow seeds yeah. and plant ideas. Yeah. How how about something like a um, beach mentor uh, as a as, as a warbird? That's something which is really affordable. Those things, and they are a genuine um, fighter trainer. They look really cool. They they go the T30, like snot. T thirty four is it? T thirty four. Yeah. Yeah. The, the mentors and the turbo mentors really they're quite they're quite a good one too. That uh, that yeah. yeah if you want to get into a warbird that sort of looks a bit different and is uh, is actually relatively affordable to put a small syndicate together, something like a mentor would be quite cool. They turn up to Oshkosh in considerable numbers. There's always Huge a bit numbers, of eh? there. Yeah, yeah, yeah massive. And they are quite expensive, I've noticed. Like, say in relation to a T6, they, you know, they typically aren't they around about, you know, the 300 Americans yeah. sort of around there? Yeah, they, they seem to hold their value. I think the popularity of them over there is quite important because mm. uh, post-war, uh, sort of everyone who went, went through both the Navy and the Air Force, I think, um, did time in T-34 at some stage. So, um, so, so yeah, everyone wants them. And they also have a lot of commonality with the Beechcraft Bonanza. So, yeah, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's the desirability of the Beechcraft stuff. So. Yeah. 
Well, you know, well, I mean, it's, it's not impossible to see a type like that. I mean, we never thought, you know, until the early uh, 1990s that we'd see a T. I didn't even know what the hell a T28 was until John yeah. Greenstreet brought brought you know brought his into the country, uh, and now we accept those. And now there's a couple here, so it's not impossible that something like a Mentor would would find its way here at some stage. But but getting back to your original suggestion of that uh, BJ-18, that's a mm. It's a stunning-looking aircraft. I saw that advert as well, and it, it just looks mint, doesn't it? And, and it's been flying recently, so it's not like it needs any overhaul or anything like that. And as you said the other day uh, when I was talking to you, it, it's literally cheaper than a Harvard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I suppose they're fairly thirsty little things. So, you know, you've got the, the, the two radials there to, to worry about. But but also, you can, you know, it's sixth place, including the crew. So, you know, the economies yeah. of scale there. Uh, I don't yeah. know. Hopefully... Um, that will work out. I took a bit of an opportunity to catch up with Ando for a bit of trans-Tasman banter today and find out what he's up to over there. And, um, of course, he's backs and forwards. He's an honorary New Zealander. He spends just about as much time in New Zealand uh, as he does in Australia, and he even follows some of our rugby teams. So he's he's really, you know, he's got a split personality, <laughs> that boy. But uh, he's been back at work. Um, he's had a lot going on, of course, and he's been backs and forwards, and he came over to, to Robin's send-off in Nelson. Uh, so, and and he was over here back in, in Easter, so he's back some forwards, but he's managed to get a bit of a hang of time, he said, in his workshop on his bird dog. I don't know whether people understand that he's a bit of a uh, an owner himself, and um, he's got VHOIA over there, which he's been toiling away on uh, on and off over the years, and he said that last weekend he pulled the tailplane apart, ready for cleaning, corrosion removal, priming painting, new skins and reassembly. And he might be doing the same to the right elevator this weekend. He's losing the use of a bee uh, blaster soon, so he's wanting to get in and get all that done. And uh, doing a few other things. He said Tamora kicks in again um, this Saturday after a month off. And uh, the interesting thing there is apparently they're trying a few changes to their format over there at Tamora in the months ahead. You'll remember they've been through a couple of different fairly hefty format changes over the years. And... Um, uh, they're going to see how this one uh, works out. So all the details are up on their website there too, if you want to check that out. Aviationmuseum.co.com.au. That's the one. Aviationmuseum.com.au. Great. Yeah, Peter Anderson, Ando, he's a he's a legend, isn't he? And he's been involved in so many projects uh, over the years. And, um, it's always great to hear what he's up to. I, I used to go over there because I became – I remember reading about Tamora in um, Classic Wings Down Under, Graham Wolfen's magazine. And when, this was years ago when it first sort of started and David Lowy built the first hangar. And I thought, man, this sounds like this isn't going to be incredible. I've got to get there. Well, I suppose I've been there a dozen, 15 times now. Uh, and I used to go over there and, and I was always super impressed. Um, those guys wrote the book about – how to do commentaries for, you know, air displays and air shows. It was just super cool. So I met him, yeah. I ran into him because we were sort of put together uh, once again by Tinder on a blind date at the Aussie uh, air show <laughs> in, um, uh, at Ardmore. And uh, we just we just clicked and we hit it off. And uh, I'd love to do another show with him sometime. We, we, we had a ball that time. And uh, so uh, I've long respected his uh, – he's just got such an encyclopedic knowledge. He can just draw on so much stuff. And I just admire – I'm not a historian. I'm more of a big picture dude so we kind of you know balance each other and um you know i'm hoping that we get that chance to do something together again sometime well so do i because i, I remember that air show that you're talking about and and really as as far as commentary goes that was the dream team listen to you guys together so well thank you it was really good hopefully yeah, some, hopefully to... somewhere sometime someday you know <laughs> it needs to happen it needs mm, to happen thank you 
Um, is there any more news out there, guys? Uh, the only other thing I have is, uh, from Endo was um, uh, the P40 production line at Doug Hamilton's place at Wangaratta is uh, in full steam, he says. One of the aircraft there is for the RAAF Museum. It's having some uh, pretty big work done at the moment to rectify some other work that was done. And he says oh, yeah. there are a number of machines still being worked on. He thinks about five at the moment. And they've got a set of wings uh, pretty near to completion over there at Wangaratta as well. So, um, yeah, wow. that's that's the news from that end of the world. Good. Okay. Um, well, we'll probably move on to the next section of the show now, which um, is really the guest spot. And it's when you guys get a chance to um, talk about what you guys have been up to and any sort of ventures that you're involved in at the moment or... So we'll start off with Bruce. Um, I know that what you've done recently is uh, you've made a film. Yeah, that's right. Um, the film is a 32-minute documentary. It's on YouTube. It's called Their Own Wings. Um, the uh, It's a documentary about uh, home-built aircraft in New Zealand, and um, that's been a, a, a bit of a project of mine uh, over summer. It's uh, something I've really wanted to do for a while um, to terms of basically telling the story, not so much of the home-built aeroplanes, but the people that build them. And um, it was uh, also as a promotion for the Sport Aircraft Association and the Sport Aircraft Movement um, because we're really quite keen to get more younger people involved and I thought part of it might be to be able to tell the people's stories behind it that people might be able to get enthused over. So... Um, We've made this this uh, this documentary. It's got uh, a number of interviews along the way of um, some home builders in New Zealand. It has uh, Bruce Burdekin from down in uh, Rangiora who has a, a rotaway helicopter. It's got Simon and Sarah Clark from here in Cambridge who are just still building an, an RV8. You've got uh, David Wilkinson who's a well-known RV8 pilot from up in North Shore in Auckland. Uh, I'm in it talking about my own design adventurer. And I've also got uh, Bill Sisley, who's the um, the National SAA president, is involved in there as well. Um, in addition, we've sort of put a little bit of background story as the, this, a brief overview of home building in New Zealand, where we've come from, um, dating back to the likes of Richard Pearce. Um, whether or not he flew, he was certainly one of the uh, the earliest builders of fixed-wing aircraft in New Zealand, so we do have to recognise that. Um, so, yeah, we, we started off with this project. Uh, I did the first shoot on it um, back during the national flying we held down in um, Ashburton, um, Pete's uh, neck of the woods down there in February. Um, I uh, did the, the recording of the session for, for Bruce's helicopter down there. Um, I also recorded some of Bill's um, interview, but unfortunately none of that made it into the final clip because... Um, one of the lessons I learned very quickly is that you don't do filming of videos on a um, airfield fly-in open day um, because just as soon as we start talking anything, there's aircraft taxiing by in the background, and I just had so much background noise it was it was quite quite unusual, uh, quite unusable. So um, you learn these lessons along the way. Um, probably the the highlight of of of, of doing the the video was actually. Um, the air-to-air -air session, which forms the, the few seconds of the opening sequence, which is uh, a head-on shot of Dave Wilkinson's RV-8 flying along the beach at Aurewa. Um 
that was quite an exercise to do that, and that was was quite a bit of thinking. Um, what we did to get that particular shot was it's a GoPro was mounted on the tail wheel bracket of um, Des's um, ZKDS, um, Desmond Barry's uh, RV7, um, which is and Des. Uh, flies with with Dave in the uh, RV Blue aerobatic team um, formation team. So these guys are really quite competent together in in, uh, in formation flying. And so I had to build up a bracket to to mount the GoPro on the over the tail wheel fork. And on the RVs, it's actually uh, it's quite a tricky one because um, there's not a lot of distance between the tail wheel and the the bottom of the rudder. And you had to sort of make sure that um, if you bounced the tail wheel, that it wasn't going to hit the rudder with the camera. So it took a little bit of work building up this bracket. Wow. And, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we mounted that on the tail wheel facing rearward. So there's no no part of the, of the of the lead aircraft visible in the shot at all. Uh, the GoPro was running uh, a Wi-Fi connection to my iPad, and I sat in um, with Des in the RV7A uh, in, in the co-pilot seat monitoring that on the iPad. Um, and then we launched off out of, out of um, North Shore. Um, uh, Dave had his son James in the back there, and we also had some GoPros sitting on his airplane as well. Uh, and some of that footage also appears in, in, in the film in, in different places. Um, and the issue was... Um, it was actually it was a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a rush because we're filming this on the day that they had the Langley Aerobatic Championships up at North Shore, and um, if you've ever sort of been involved with aerobatics competitions before, you know that nothing ever runs to a time frame. Um, and we thought we got up there with plenty of time, and we we're sort of pottering around and. The, the guys wanted to hang around to the presentations of the uh, of the prize giving so that they knew know how what their results were and um, at the same time sort of watching the time and Dave had to disappear off to a family do later on and so the time was getting more and more um, compressed but uh, we managed to get um, sort of latest afternoon so we got good light we we launched out there the problem was is that the when you're running a GoPro with Wi-Fi connection to it, to an iPad, is that it starts devouring the batteries on the camera really quickly, and we sort of only got a chance to get one shot on this. It's uh, basically the sequence as we go down the beach, um, and we're up around um, Walkworth Way. Basically, we got up to, uh, and then the camera battery went flat. So had a really limited chance to get the shot and the shots looked pretty good I was, I was pretty impressed with them um, so that was was quite good to get them in the can the only problem was is that the way that the bracket was mounted it actually had a vibration which um, got into sync with the frame rate on the camera and you yep. get the uh, infamous GoPro jelly wobble which, oh, yep. which was somewhat disappointing um, we know what caused that Bruce I've yeah, I've seen it, it myself. It's yeah, it's because it's, it's, it's the scan rate is, is, is at, there's a vibration which is at the same, uh, it's at, at resonance with the with the rate at which it scans. Now, one thing I noticed when I did the footage on Bruce's helicopter down at Ashburton was um, when I had it set to a, a, a lower resolution and a different um, 
a different frame rate, it actually the vibration disappeared. I had two cameras on that helicopter, one of which got the jelly wobble and one didn't. And it was the the lower res one actually didn't. So lessons you learn along the way. I mean, I possibly could have um, could have dropped the resolution and, and got a better quality out of it. But that's actually really handy to know for the yeah. future, though, isn't it? It is. It's it's a, it's a real learning experience from that, and that's one of the ideas of it was was to actually experiment um, in terms of um, a bit of professional development. Is actually learning these techniques was actually really worthwhile. Um, I mean, I did a lot of post production to try and clean up that jelly wobble, um, and but it's still there a bit. But um, that's my only real sort of my biggest disappointment with the thing is that that, that incredible footage, because uh, it looks so good when you're watching it live coming up on the iPad, um, watch Dave position the, the RV8 there, just tuck it in underneath the tail and the, the over, running over a beautiful blue beach and, and stuff. It was incredible. Um, the foot, sure. It was great. But, um, yeah, that was the one disappointment with that. But um, It sounds great. Bruce, are you going to what, release it via DVD or just on YouTube? It, or it's ca- it's currently on YouTube. It's currently on YouTube. If you search for Their Own Wings, it's sitting okay. on there. Um, I'll, I'll put the link yep. into the um, show page as Excellent. well. Excellent. Cool. Uh, and, the, and the plan is, is that um, because it's actually um, the, the – the documentaries and these sort of chunks of interviews is the idea is that um, I will be re-editing them over the next few months and and releasing them as smaller chunks because um, uh, the modern world is that you you have shorter attention spans and maybe 32 minutes may be a bit too long to watch so I'm targeting them into into six to eight minute chunks. Um, That's a good idea. And re re-editing them just as sort of one interview at a time um, and. With with new headers and, and tailor tails on them to, uh, to 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 give context. So that's that's uh, that's the next plan. So that it's just um, just broadens the the influence of SAA. Um, hopefully to try and inspire a few people. Um, yeah, well, it's it's worth uh, it's worth taking a look. I've seen the film too, and I, I think good. it's really yeah. enjoyable. It's uh, it, it's a really good film, and um, and with good people, and a lot of those people I haven't met them all, but I've, a, a number of the people involved I have um, I've met through uh, Black Sands, which is the um, Waikato Bay of Plenty chapters um, uh, annual fly-in at uh, Raglan, and that's such an enjoyable, fun, friendly. Event, I, I just love it. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I I would never build an aeroplane myself, and and uh, I'm not a pilot, but I just love going to the the uh, SAA SAA flying at Black Sands. Yeah, the 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 biggest thing I find about the SAA movement, and this is why I made the video, is that it's actually not the aeroplanes. The aeroplanes yeah. are actually kind of incidental. It's sort of a, it's a it's a shared interest. But um, they're not the important thing. It's actually all the people you meet. Um, exactly. You can go to an SAA chapter meet and it's the middle of winter and it's in someone's shed and they haven't made a huge start on their project. They may only have one or two bits and pieces, but you have many hours of interesting talks to people there. So it's all about the people. Um, and uh, it, it, that's, um, that's what SAA is about. Yeah, While yeah. I'm on that and subject, um, I'll actually give you a couple of dates here, actually, of things that are coming up for SAA. Um, probably the, the one that you mentioned there about Black Sands uh, at yep. Raglan Airfield, that's on the 4th and 5th of November. And that's uh, that's one which is uh, now into about its 12th year, I think it is. It's, um, it's really... Um, it's gone a, a whole lot bigger than I had ever planned when I when I sort of was 
we started it off. But uh, it's it's a huge gathering of sort of home builders from all over the country. Well, it's actually not just home builders. We have GA pilots and glider pilots, microlight guys, gyrocopter guys. Basically, if it flies, you're welcome along. Um, come in there 4th, 5th of November. Uh, we have a beach flying day. We'll go off and do um, some landings on one of the beaches just north of Raglan, huge big black sand beach, great for learning um, the skills of landing on beaches. Um, and the big thing is, of course, that we have a real decent feed. Our guys are really good at turning out a good feed. And, oh, yes. um, yeah, we we, ha- we have, have a decent um, lunch on both the Saturday and Sunday. So that's a plug for that. And the other one, if you're really interested in sport aviation aircraft, is our National Flyer, which this year, well, next year, 2008, it's going to be held over the weekend of the 9th to the 11th of March. And it will be held at Waipokarau. Um, we have previously held the northern one. Uh, we've had it at Tauranga, we've had it at Matamata, had it at Hastings. Uh, this coming year, we'll be moving it to Waipokarau. Uh, nice big grass airfield. We can um, work around there without getting in the way of uh, lots of other commercial operators. Um, Basically, aircraft from all over the country can come in. It's nice and central and can sit around and um, tell tall stories and talk lots of fluent aeroplane. <laughs> so is that uh, that's down on the coast above Wellington, is it? Waipukarau? Waipukarau, that's uh, sort of southern Hawke's Bay, sort of ah, between oh. between Masterton and Hastings, okay. you'd say. So, yeah, it's sort oh, of yeah, southern central Hawke's Bay. It's a lovely, lovely piece of New Zealand to go flying around too. Yeah. Plus it's wine country down there, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, cool. So, um, Peter, you, uh, you've you recently had a trip over to the US. Yeah. Uh, well, I have. We want to hear a bit from Al, too. Al's been a bit quiet. I feel like we're just, you know, just putting in the corner there, Al. But anyway, just quickly, <laughs> the, the US thing. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Um, we, we went over there, my wife and I, and uh, my son, Jason, who incidentally is just... Uh, now, a, a, a warbird, well, he's got his second share in a warbird. Yeah, he's got a share in the 78 Harvard at um, Admiral, but also he's just bought down here a share in JPW, the Ashburton Yak 52 syndicate. So uh, that's just uh, recently, as about a week ago. So, yeah, he actually bought a share. He bought the share that used to be um, Ron McDougall's. Ron was a, um, a very good pilot here. My kids, when we first moved back to Ashburton, used to watch this incredible pits display over the airfield. And they were always bemused because they'd go over and have a look. And they said, Dad, you know, that, that incredible flying. And this guy that looks like he's about 90 just got out of the plane, sort of fell out of it. And that was Ron. He was an incredible pilot and um, yep. sadly not with us anymore. So uh, Jason was able to pick up um, his share. So that was good. But no, we so we all went over to the States and uh, just to cut a long story short, flew into um, flew into um, Houston, which, of course, is now direct flight from Auckland, and spent a couple of days there, visited the uh, big space museum. Museum there, which is absolutely incredible. And the takeaway there, I think, was the fact that in 1969, I can remember being in Standard 5 or 6 at school, listening to it on the radio, like, you know, the whole world. And uh, when you look at the gear that they went there, and I just you thought, yeah, well, this is brilliance meets bravery. You know, the computer systems of the day were only really used for procedural sort of stuff. All the big thinking stuff was really just done with the human brain. And when you looked at what they went and then came back in and stuff, uh, you can't help feel just utter admiration for those people they talk about you know having to have the right stuff you know back in 1969 how keen would you guys have been to strap yourself into that thing and head for the moon 
Really? I wouldn't even do it now, yeah, honestly. Yeah. Oh, just incredible. I, so I'm that was sure all good. It's true or not, but I've, I've heard that that Saturn V rocket, they, it, it wasn't able to support support its own weight upright until it was refueled, until it was pressurised with, with yeah. fuel. It didn't have the strength to hold itself upright. And, um, there you go. I'm not sure if that's, yeah, that's true or not. The, uh, yeah, it is. It's a Coke can theory. Um, really thin walls because it's got all the, the pressure actually stiffens it up. So. Mm. All right. Well, we had, a good look, we, we had a good look around there and, and we had a good look around there and then shot down to Galveston. Now, I don't know whether you guys know where Galveston is or much about Galveston. I didn't realise uh, that it's kind of like an island which is just, you know, um, you know off the coast of uh, Houston and it's connected by a bridge and it's got a big history in, in the slave trade and what have you. So our Uber driver, who was a um, black um, Vietnam vet from the Navy who uh, took us out there, he was he took dropped us off, but they're not keen to go out there at night. He said there's a lot of the, a lot of the ghosts of the past out there in that place. But we uh, we went to have a look at the Lone Star Flight Museum, who are in the throes of moving to their big flash new place, which is um, closer into Houston itself. Uh, of course, they got hammered by the big cyclone there with Katrina, and um, it's a great well. The, the facility's okay, but the aircraft are brilliant. But uh, back in the day, um, when the cyclone hit, the, 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 the whole hard stand where we were walking around the B-17 was under eight feet of water, and even the big ha- the, even the big hangar was under eight feet of water. And they, the, you could apparently see the watermark around the wall there for quite a long time. Um, and so they got warning, of course, and flew out whatever they could to save the ground. But there was some stuff there that they couldn't, and a lot of stuff got wrecked including I think there was a Spitfire and various other bits and pieces which are now in storage. But they've got this new facility, so they're in the throes, uh, I think, over the next couple of months of moving everything uh, to there. So that's fantastic. And once again, uh, the aircraft, just absolutely amazing. Um, not presented as in service, but, you know, real show ponies, the high-gloss, shiny stuff, you know, <laughs> yeah, just as, yeah, as yeah. you'd expect um, Texans to do. Um, we shot up to Dallas and had a quick look. I wanted to show the family the C.R. Smith Museum, which is the American Airlines Museum there, which is right next to their, you know, simulators and their pilot training and all that sort of stuff. It's all in the same sort of area there at Fort Worth. Did that and then shot out that afternoon because we knew that uh, the B-29 Fifi was in town. So we shot out to Dallas Executive Airport and uh, we're very fortunate to uh, get on board Fifi and, you know, have a really good look over it and around it and, and what have you. They had a couple of C-45s flying there that day and a couple of Texans and they just had a big sort of an open day. And they were doing rides in the uh, in various aircraft, including the B-29. But the incredible news there is that they've got plans now. Uh, they've got a large site at that airport, and they're moving their big headquarters to Dallas Executive, and they're building a new facility, um, which will be displays and hangar and maintenance and all sorts of things. The facility will be big enough to house the B-29 inside, which is great news. Uh, so it'll be undercover. And um, the uh, it's uh, are you sitting down, guys? The projected cost for that facility is between fifty and sixty million dollars. Oh. So you know, uh, for a voluntary organisation, the Commemorative Air Force are a pretty big outfit, and uh, we we really enjoyed having a look around there. Actually, um, it was it was it was a good vibe, good scene, and that's going to be an incredible project when it's done. Well, so yeah, that's the basis that... of the um, the B twenty nine rides. What, what 
I've always been curious. Well, I'm not quite sure. How, I don't know. Sure, I'm not sure how the hell they do it and where they do it. Uh, it must be they must sit them in. I mean, I, I have been fortunate enough to, to fly in the B-17 aluminium overcast, and you know they had various stations in that aircraft mm. that you strap yourself into, and once you got airborne, you're able to move around a bit. It's a wee bit of a different configuration in the. Um, uh, in the B-29, so I actually didn't find out, I should have asked exactly where they put people and how many they can take because I can't imagine they'd just stand on the bomb bay, I don't think that would be sort of right no, but, no, but, I, but, um, them, but um, I, I, yeah, I have seen some YouTube clips from uh, passengers on the B-29, apparently they it's only sort of a small handful at once and they've got yeah. crew members there and you can move around and you can go through the tunnel Now They don't do that anymore, please you mention that because yeah. I mean I looked at that thing as you're climbing up into the bomb bay and you look back across the top of the uh, the bomb bay. There's this, well, they called it, a, they said it was 30 feet long. I suppose it would be about that. A 30 foot long round tube, uh, which was used for accessing, you know, the between the rear of the aircraft and the front of the aircraft. But um, the guy that was telling me, well, the guide on the day said that they'd had a problem with somebody in flight who got halfway through the tunnel and panicked and froze and you know and they won't and i can imagine that happening it would be a very claustrophobic yeah, experience yeah, crawling yeah. through there and so apparently they don't allow that any anymore now um that's what i was told oh that's uh, yeah yeah so you know, that was so, that, can, so um, people can freak out with that sort of claustrophobia when you, you wouldn't expect that sort of person that's an enthusiast to, to have that sort of problem but i have seen it personally with people doing tank inspections, you know. Yeah. In, in my engineering days, people inside a wing tank, but um, suddenly it all gets a bit too much for them. And, um, yeah, it's an awful – especially a wing tank would be an awful place to be. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I looked at it myself and I thought, oh, I wouldn't be that flash on crawling through there, to be fair. And, you know, I, I, yeah, especially some of those bigger Americans who are listening yes, tonight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they may find it, you know, I could see how somebody would – start to sort of panic in there a little bit so yeah but no what a wonderful I've long been a fan of the commemorative air force and uh, you know that's a huge organization and of course we've got uh, we've still got sort of a the remnants of that here in New Zealand haven't we Dave yes there is uh, still a uh, commemorative commemorative air force uh, squadron here based at uh, North Shore in Auckland and um, they aren't flying anything at the moment but they've got a, a fairly good collection of military vehicles and um, the hope is in the future that they may get some uh, aircraft flying again so mm. um, we'll watch that space but uh, we'll see what happens yeah yeah but no that was pretty much our, our trip so uh, oh no just a quick one here I've left out probably the highlight which was uh, I don't know whether you've ever been to or heard about uh, the National World War Two Museum in New Orleans have you fellas heard about that uh, yes, yes, I, I have heard of it. Wow, it's just something else. I tell you what, um, I've seen nothing like it, and we we sort of I'd done a bit of research, and we thought it, I thought I'd sort of considered it before we went, and then sort of semi forgotten about it for some reason. It used, used to be called the D Day Museum, I believe, uh, right. and, and it's just. Uh, absolutely sensational. I, I mean, I haven't been to the Smithsonian or any of those places. I've been to Cosford and a few of those other big outfits. But this place, I would imagine, uh, sets the benchmark for presenting uh, World War II history anywhere in the world. It's absolutely stunning. It's a, a series of great big modern um, architecturally challenging but fascinating buildings um, that, that house this incredible collection of airframes, including the B-29 My Gal Cell, uh, which... Uh, was one of the aircraft that um, uh, force landed out of fuel on an ice cap. 
and a businessman uh, recovered it and paid for its entire restoration and and, and, uh, and donated it to the nation to hang in this wow. museum. Oh, they've got just about everything there and excellent audio visuals, excellent state-of-the-art um, displays and a massive theatre. I just forget the name of the theatre now, but it's a Tom Hanks narrated thing that happens and you imagine you're in a, a picture theater except the screen is about four times wider or, or bigger than an IMAX let's say massively tall massively wide this thing opens up and it tells you the whole story about how the Americans you know were brought into World War Two, and you see yeah. uh, these um, B-17s flying and one of them's cut off you know from about the front of the center section forward and you sort of can't quite work out what the heck's going on there until you're aware out of your peripheral vision out of the ceiling in front of the screen is being lowered the actual front 20, 30 feet of a B-17, which matches up with what's going on on the screen. So this whole thing becomes a 3D incredible experience. There's, you know, when it needs to snow, it's snowing. When it, You know, there's... What, where the orchestra pit is, there's all these other props and bits and pieces coming up. It's a very much a multimedia experience, and it's just stunningly done. You know, it's it's the whole place is just fascinating, and I think um, anybody who really wants to see and get a very good appreciation, you know, for for the whole World War Two story, it's honestly worth the trip from New Zealand into Houston, bit of a, a commuting flight to New Orleans to go and spend a couple of days, longer if you could, at that museum. It is sensational. Okay. Well, that's that sounds remarkable. That's brilliant. There's a lot of, um, you know, it apparently emerged out of a couple of guys at a barbecue years ago. One was a historian, a bit like yourself, Dave, collecting a lot of information. And they sort of had this idea that they should, you know, there needed to be a repository for it all. And that's really how the idea um, started, I think, for the D-Day Museum originally. Um, yep. But since then, of course, some corporate heavyweights have come on board, like Boeing and I think Marshall Aerospace and big outfits like that have sunk, obviously, millions of dollars into this place, uh, along with funding from other areas. And um, they've got a C-47 in the, when you go in the first um, atrium there, a C-47 and a Spitfire, which is, I think, the only... Um, British aircraft and the whole thing there, um, hanging from the you know this atrium and uh, the the lady who was a guide there says oh no we've had, yeah we were very proud of the C forty seven it's an actual D day veteran and we bought it on eBay for one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Wow! <laughs> so you can get everything on eBay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. But no, it's, it's highly I would highly recommend it. I can't I can't overstate how magnificent it is as a museum and it's just so worth so worth the visit you won't do it in a day we did but you know really it was a once over lightly you could you could i believe spend a week there if you're a real enthusiast and you still wouldn't get it you know you still wouldn't get it all right oh brilliant Hmm. l what what have you been up to is that what's happening with that's gone really quiet that hercules engine on the trailer or have you have you, did you have to use that back in the actual airframe of the? Yeah, yeah, she's uh, she's still she's still bolted on the uh, on the aircraft. Right, there. of course. Um, so you're looking for another one for your frame, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, it's 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 quite good because that 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 trailer, as as many people have seen it, you know, it takes up the the floor area of probably a ten seat van, a Toyota Hiace, mm-hmm. and it, it did live in my workshop for a, a few years until we took it back up to Omaka. To, to bolt yep. back on the aircraft, so it does free up an awful lot of space in my shed, which is which is quite good. Um, mm. And it's 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 not ideal having it out in the weather like that, but um, but every time I visited, you know, in the three years it's been up there now, um, it's it's not suffering. We we wrap it up with a tarpaulin 
after every every run, we we seal it up again with the tarpaulins and oh, yeah. and then put the cows up around it. So it yeah, it's not showing any um, significant signs of you know sort of abuse by birds and, and nesting and stuff mm. like that. But, but it's a very satisfying place for it to be. You know, from from where it was found at the Renwick dump, covered in veggie scraps and. To have it back up on the airplane again, it's, it is quite satisfying for it. And uh, like I say, it does free up space in my workshop at home. Well, I can imagine. How, how terminal? Uh, how, how terminal was the one you took off it that you had to replace? Oh, it was. I, I believe. I, I do tend to think that if we'd run it again for that that air show, um, 2015, uh, there's every chance it would have destroyed itself. Hmm. Um, uh, it was. It was doing weird things. It was it was making a lot of metal, and every now and again we'll pull the scavenge filters out of that that engine on that starboard side just to see what it was doing. And and <clears throat> Marty Nickel took took the scavenge filter out and sent me pictures of what was in it, and it looked to me it looked like gear teeth. And of course, anyone that knows a Bristol Hercules knows that it's full of gears. Mm. It's probably forty or fifty or thirty forty gears of all sorts of different sizes and. Um, so I saw these gear teeth, and I thought, "Gee, something in there is is chewing itself to bits." So, so I went and investigated it, and um, trying to find out, you know, where which which source of of gears that was breaking down, and so I sort of suspected that the the, the big sleeve drive sleeve drive mechanism at the front has got its own scavenge system, so none of that can end up in the sump. So I, I pulled the, I think I pulled the sump off. To have a look at the supercharging drives and uh, the magnetos and all that, and um, and there were still segments of these pieces of steel inside the the sump, and um, <clears throat> excuse me, and they were big enough that you could see a, an arc on them, and it was pretty clear that they weren't gear teeth; they were actually a piston ring that had mm-hmm. had um, had broken and somehow ended up in the sump. And of course, when you think of it, you know piston rings often break in service, and you don't find them until you pull the cylinder off. For whatever reason, right. so I thought, how how could a piston ring liberate itself out of its groove, out of the cylinder, and end up in the sump? And um, the only thing I could really think of was that perhaps one of the crankshaft bearings had had broken down, and the, and the crankshaft wasn't um, central inside the crankcase. And so I thought the only way to find that out is, is to take a cylinder off. And I chose the one cylinder that it, it was easy enough to get to on my step ladder. I had the sun on my back when I was doing it and and I could have my my car parked next to the airplane listening to the stereo so this one cylinder that I chose to pull off was the uh, the most comfortable to get at on the on the step ladder and it just happened to be the um the master cylinder for that bank and anyone that knows the Bristol Hercules if you if you pull off the master cylinder um you can't turn the engine because uh, when that master rod the geometry of the master rod if you, if you move it it can drag one of the opposite cylinders far enough into its okay. case, uh, into the cylinder that will drop a piston ring out. Mm. And so when I pulled this rod off, I thought, ah, oh, the cylinder, I saw, there's the master rod. And I thought, oh, it's, it's the last one because I wanted to be able to turn the engine around and have a good look inside. But um, it was lucky I did because one in 14 chance, that was the master rod on that rear bank and it was cracked from front to rear. Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, there was actually witness marks on the sleeve on that cylinder where the the flanks of that conrod had actually been rubbing on the side of the cylinder. So un- under load, when it was running, not that we load them up, but at the idle power that we run them, that that conrod had actually been distorting enough that it was rubbing on the side of the cylinder. And I yeah, I tend to think that it was 
you know, it was on the on the process of of self destructing. So it was a one in fourteen chance. So I was I was basically going to reassemble it and just keep monitoring the scavenge folder. But I don't think she would have lasted. So now back in the day when the when the Aero Club um, acquired it and parked it up there, well, at that point had those engines been inhibited? Yes, yeah, they they did, and mm. and of course it flew over with serviceable engines, and and the the provisor when Safe donated it was that anything that they could sell, they would sell once once it got delivered to Omaka, mm. they would uh, and of course the engines got taken off and um, some of the instruments and radios, and and a couple of engines were just sourced and and hung on there as as basically just to make the airplane complete again. So they they were run and then inhibited, but. Oh, yeah. um, Probably not more than twice in the, in the twenty years that it sat idle. It's it's mm. staggering that um, that those engines, because the first people, it's like a model aircraft. When someone sees propellers on a model aircraft, they try and spin them with their fingers. Yep. And visitors to that airfield, they haul on the propeller blades, and um, of course those engines. Um, the minute you do that, you destroy the inhibiting. So it is yep. it is rather incredible that they they were pre- preserved outside. Yeah. Uh, in that manner, and that they could be uh, could be run again. Agree. I think it's also uh, it's really great that you had in the meantime got your um, your own Hercules running, so that when that one got to that stage where it was just about to blow itself up, that you could you could slot that on and still keep the aircraft running for the air show because isn't it such a fantastic thing to see that aircraft taxiing up and down the strip. Um, you know, during the air show, and you've got thousands of people watching you. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting that because we, because we don't fly it, we get the lunchtime slot, and mm. it is interesting to see how many people uh, don't go for lunch. They'll, mm. they'll, yeah. they'll stay put and, and watch the airplane, and then, um, yeah, you suspend reality because uh, your, your brain says when when you, when it, when you see it rumble past, to all intents and purposes, it's just about to go flying. So in your sort of head, it does fly, even though it doesn't. You know, it's it's, it's the next best thing, isn't it? Yes, yeah, and, and the people that we have taken for taxi rides, um, and I know you'll probably vouch for me, Dave, you'd swear you go, you're airborne anyway, just with the noise. And, oh, um, absolutely. And yeah, no, I literally thought on that on that taxi ride that I did, I literally thought that we were about to take off. It just it felt, there was so much, there was more vibration than, than you'd get in, in, in a normal airline at full takeoff power. So. Yeah, no, she's, uh, she's spectacular, right? Yeah, and you mentioned about taking people for taxi rides, and uh, for me, one of the really special things is watching uh, when you guys stop and uh, uh, what's his name, Scotty, jumps out and he goes to the crowd and just selects a child or a couple of kids and take them on board. Mm. You know that that is so special to see the reaction of those people, and uh, you know they get up the top there and hop pop out the hatch and go for that taxi ride, which they'll never forget. Yeah, especially the, the the young bloke that Scotty chose on the Saturday. Uh, he, he made a big he, – he he wasn't there two years ago, but his, his mother was, I think, six years ago. His, his mother, being ex-Blenheim, she's a Blenheim local, she was at the air show, and and she went home with a, a wooden carved model of a Bristol freighter. So young, young Thomas at that point was two years old, so this was a present for Thomas two years old. Yep. And so six years later, when he was eight – and he was standing on the side of the crowd line. Of course, the Bristol taxi taxis passed. He knew he knew damn well what was going to happen. So when when Scotty came out to choose the, the passenger to go for a taxi ride, yeah, he made it pretty clear that uh, young Thomas was the, the bloke to choose. Yeah, <laughs> jumping up and down, waving his oh, arms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So of course he he climbed on board. Him and his mum climbed on board, and they 
they came up into the cockpit and we popped the top hatch and because we're texting along and they're waving out the top hatch and uh yeah he's just a he was an incredible little kid yeah yeah now i've got another question for you as a 737 man yes uh, you know when we look around um at what we've managed to retain here. We've got, you know, the old, um, you know, Rapides, Dominies, all that sort of stuff. We've got a, several DC-3s flying and, and, and more in museums. Uh, we've got um, a couple of F-27s uh, surviving. We've got the Viscount at Ferrymead. Uh, there's a case, isn't there, when it comes to sort of aircraft preservation and, and acknowledging the history uh, of the role of those early 737s uh, in our in our aviation history I, th I think so yeah yeah and and the, the early 737 you know it was it was new zealand's first jet and um, jet airliner and yeah it always comes down to you know where where would you put one of these things where would you store it and display it but that would be the machine to choose because an early 737 isn't actually a very big airplane no in, in the scheme of things um yeah the, the modern ones you know, the, the first ones, I think they carried 115 people. And, you know, I flew one the other day, we carried 187, 100, 183 people on board. So, um, yeah, it would, yeah, if, if you could find a place to 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 store it and, and display it, yeah, I, I agree. I know that, you know, Paul Brennan's Bring Our Birds Home is a pretty bold sort of a plan. And good on Paul. He's really, you know, he's, he's peddling that one very, very hard. And he's been very consistent in his messages. And, um, you know, I guess he's looking at the big picture of the thing. But, I mean, even if he was able to achieve one of those, and maybe it would be the 737, there are precedents like in Australia with Haas where they've done great mm. things with, with, mm. the, uh, with the 74. Um, and, you know, of course, they have a lot of uh, Qantas engineers, retirees and what have you that are working on those projects. But I don't really see it being impossible for that to happen in New Zealand. I think you would get support to acquire it and get it here. It's, as you say, it's where it, where does it go? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, t I take my hat off to the Haas people because, you know, even as a small group of us in Melbourne, you know, with the, the Bristol on display, um, keeping the moss and mould and keeping it presentable, um, mm. you know, something like, like I say, yeah, the, the Haas guys with a, a jumbo seven four seven, um, yeah, it, yeah, a little seven three. Well, I won't say little, but yeah, seven three seven. It's probably no bigger than a Lockheed Constellation, and in terms of transporting it, you know, they they do disassemble mm. down into into pieces. Uh, yep. Yeah, I, I think it'd be a good start. Yeah, depends where it went. Of course, I mean, uh, but the easiest way would be to fly one into wherever it's going, if if that could happen. But uh, that would save a lot of hassles, wouldn't a lot of dramas. But oh, it would. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, and it doesn't take a great deal to get a, a machine like that that hasn't been in storage for a long time. Uh, you know, ferry permits and approvals and what what have you. There's certainly people that can can fly them. Um, yeah, well, well, it's a bit of a continuation. If if we don't see one uh, restored uh, or preserved in New Zealand. Uh, in a museum or some sort of an exhibition somewhere, really, there's going to be a, a major gap in that story, isn't there? Yeah. Mm. That's absolutely right, and we'll end up with a gap just like the the, the Corsair gap we were talking about yeah. earlier. It's like a, a glaring gap in the, yeah. in the collection. So, yeah. Of course, speaking, yeah. speaking of Haas, there, I thought it was just one of the most brilliant bits of news out recently was uh, you know the John Travolta 707 donation to, to them. I mean, their story just keeps on getting better over there. I just, I mean, they just blow me away. Those guys, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and good on them too. Oh, good yeah. team. Yeah, too right. Yeah. Uh, what else have you been up to, Al? I know that you're working on your locomotive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, I've, in the last, I, in the last in February, I, I got a transfer back to Christchurch. I've been doing a lot of my flying out of Auckland. Is um, right. 
it was about a 70-30 um, split in crew between Auckland and Christchurch. And, and to become a captain, typically we have to go up to Auckland and do the commute for a number of a number of months. And in some cases, some guys have done a number of years commuting. And um, I was lucky enough to do just only 14 months, when, which is, as a new captain, it's, it's quite valuable to, to fly up into the Pacific Islands and into Australia throughout the period of a year because you get to see all the, the four different seasons and how, especially in the islands, how, how the, the place can treat you um, in the middle of the night when you're, you're flying into storms and what have you. And, um, yeah, right. so in, in February I got a transfer back to back to Christchurch here, yeah, which meant that I was no longer commuting. And, and the commute does take a lot, lot of your time. So if you have a three-day a three off block between, between trips, um, you might lose a day by getting to and from Auckland. So... Yes, so I'm back in my workshop at home now, which is which is good. And yeah, little uh, well, it's not little. It's the more I do on this locomotive, the bigger it gets and the, the heavier it gets. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a live steam uh, New Zealand government railways uh, tank engine that I, that I've been building from plans for the last probably the last couple of years on and off. But but yeah, now that I have time at home, um, yeah, it's it's coming along quite nicely. It's, it's at the point now where I, I struggle to lift it back off the workbench and. Okay. Very, very quickly, I'll have to make a separate workbench to to build it on because it, um, yeah, I liken it to a home built. You know, people that build home builds suddenly have to knock out a wall to get the aircraft out of their house. <laughs> yeah. And and this thing will be very, very quickly become like that. But yeah, no, it's 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 a challenging. Um, it's you know when I say little, it's it's six and a half feet long. So it's, it's a so, very handsome engine. There's no doubt about that. And of course, your dad built your dad built a smaller version of it. Yes, he did, didn't he? And then yeah, you've, yeah, you've so re- got, recommissioned that. I got the steam bug off of him. So he, yeah. he built a five inch gauge one, which was four foot six, and I'm building this the next gauge up, which is six foot four. So for those that are listening and wondering about this, you can uh, follow the progress on uh, on the Al's Facebook page. Uh, what's what's your uh, handle there on Facebook, Al? Yeah, I think it's just me, what, Alistair Marshall. Just you, yeah, um, I think yeah. Look yeah. it up there, and you'll you'll see the story there. Uh, I got sucked. I thought, who is this young fella in the shop? You know, <laughs> and then I, yeah. I, I know it's him. He's speaking in a you know like a, <laughs> a third person sort of thing. So, uh, no, it's a wonderful project, and uh, really enjoy it when you post up. And I, we know we're not talking aeroplanes here right now, but. Uh, just goes to show you, airplane people aren't, you know, one track one trick ponies. They do have other interests, and uh, this this steam locomotive that Al's building is just going to be magnificent. It, it is qu- quite amusing when I um I often go to my my shed via the BP, and I'll get I'll get a coffee on the way to the shed. And um, ever since I've been working out of Christchurch since February, just shortly after February, I had a had a month's leave, which was centered around the Classic Fighters Air Show. So I had a month off, which was which was really good, and. Um, the girl that makes my coffee, she goes, so what do you actually do? And, of course, I'm there. I've been working on cast iron, covered in soot and overalls and stuff. And, you know, eventually she found out that I'm a commercial pilot. And I don't think she believes me yet because I had I had a month's annual leave. And then then I get given a month of reserve. So for that next month, I'm at home unless I'm needed. So as long as I've got my phone with me, I've got an hour and a half to get to work if, if I'm needed. And because most of our flights leave Christchurch at six or seven in the morning if, if i wake up in my own time chances are i won't be used for that day but you know i, I keep yeah. my phone with me obviously and yeah. so there's another month so what, yeah. uh, when are you going to work well i'm on a month's reserve now and yeah, <laughs> yeah the girl at bp she just thinks you're trying to impress the hell out yeah, of her and she's yeah. not buying I mean, any of that of she doesn't believe me and of course i i, I go to work at <laughs> five in the morning so you know it would be nice to go there go get a coffee on the way to work but of course that place isn't open so right. <laughs> 
Oh, yes. brilliant. And now I'm on two weeks leave now, so get goes, back into that. Now? Yeah. So. Back into that loco. Hey, I, just a quick thing there. I was just fascinated when you started off that project and you were starting to lay out some bits and pieces. Uh, what, what intrigued me was that you were just using bits and pieces of scrap metal here and there that you're, you know, turning down to do this or make that. And, you know, you, you, people think when you're building something as prestigious and wonderful as a, as a large-scale working steam locomotive that you must go out and buy all new materials or stuff but you've managed to sort of repurpose a lot of bits and pieces you've had lying around obviously that you've um, you know turned and milled and you know, performed wonders on a lot of those bits of rough metal yeah yeah well I, I can get a lot from the scrap man you know a dollar a kilo yeah um if i was to go and buy it from you know from a supplier you've got to buy six meter lengths of steel and and bits and pieces right. and um you know my dad on the coast you know was over there a while back and and he says, hey, take this. And he handed me this piece of phosphor bronze steel. And it was this for He's given me $1,000 cash. You know, sort of, mm. oh, I can't, <laughs> I can't take that. No, <laughs> oh, I can't accept that. You know, and, and it's all scrap metal. But, yeah, you know, I've got a piece of steel that was out of the art center, part of the earthquake rebuild. It turned up on trade me 100-millimeter diameter round stock steel. And, and it was a dollar a kilo, basically. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an old piece of steel, obviously. And it's... An, doesn't take much before you can, you know, you can mill a new piece of locomotive out of it. It's it's pretty cool. But see, this is this is this is just, you know, it's just like it's Glyn Powell all over again. It's you know whether it's locomotives or it's aircraft or it's um, you know world class technology in Bermuda and the America's Cup. Kiwis are real good at this sort of stuff. Uh, not mm. chucking things away and making something great out of not much at all. Right, exactly. That's that's the that's the spirit that has kept our air force going for years. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, you look yeah. at you look at the air force, our, our air force that you know have, have what would they be fifty um, two year old Hercules? You know, there's there's a lot of air forces around that have had Hercules for fifty two years, but there's only one air force that's had the same Hercules for fifty two years. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think the the Aussies are on their fourth generation Hercules now. I think aren't they? Yeah, well, I don't think there's anyone in the Air Force. There's, not very, there's very few people that are still currently serving in the Air Force that are older than those aircraft. Certainly not right. none of the pilots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I was actually up in, um, I was at Fenerbahce uh, on Tuesday, and, um, yeah, they're getting younger and younger all the time, those guys. Uh, but uh, no, I, um, I was very lucky to uh, be up there um, uh, Invited by Five Squadron, uh, of, uh, me being part of the uh, New Zealand Bomber Command Association, uh, we got invited along to one of their open days for their uh, as a family day, and uh, we were included because the Bomber Command Association is sort of twinned with Five Squadron, so they consider us family. And uh, yeah, they put on a really nice event and um, sort of uh, yeah put on the hospitality. So um, it's really always good to go back to. Uh, I, I was based there for a, quite a while, and um, it's uh, uh, yeah, it's good to go back and um, you know make make contact with the current Air Force guys and girls. They're not getting young; you're just getting older, Dave. Mm, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that was you, that was you once. <laughs> I know that's right. Yep. In fact, I I remember uh, when I was at Hobsonville one day this whole crowd of old guys all piled into the uh, airmen's club on a Friday afternoon and they were probably in their 60s and we were all going, oh, who are these guys? And we were we were in our very young 20s and um, 
one of them uh, said they were the Hobbs of old boys, and I was like thinking, oh man, that's just incredible seeing all these old guys. You know, I'm thinking, Jesus, I'll, I'll probably be joining the Hobbs of old boys. Soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh dear, but uh, yeah, um, I've uh, actually I'll, I'll just uh, catch you up on a few things I've been doing the last few weeks. So I've actually made two trips up to Auckland in the last couple of weeks, and. Um, Caught up with some very interesting people uh, in that time, which uh, I've done quite a few recordings for future uh, Wings Over New Zealand shows, and one of them um, was with Connie Bickford, who's a um, an ex-WAF, uh, Royal Air Force WAF. She was a, um, a um, radar operator and also a plotter table uh, WAF. So she was down in the... Um, uh, sort of southwest of England, and uh, her job was monitoring all the aircraft coming across the the uh, English Channel and uh, sending up the fighters uh, that were on her base to uh, intercept them. And a really, really amazing lady. She's uh, 97 and wow. um, sharp, sharp as a tack. Um, very, very funny. Um, no, really, really interesting enjoyable uh, interview as well. So um, that one's coming up fairly soon. And um, earlier this year, we had our uh, Ardmore Forum meet uh, at Warbirds, and one of the guest speakers there was 95-year-old Stan Walker, who was a um, number 490 New Zealand Squadron Sunderland pilot. And he gave a really excellent half-hour talk uh, at, at that forum meet. And... Um, I've followed up on that and, and visited him while I was in Auckland a couple of weeks ago and recorded two and a half hours of his memories. So um, we're going to have, uh, uh, you know, Stan on the show with a lot more in-depth uh, information. If you want to see the original uh, talk that he gave at the forum meet, uh, um, Stu Russell very kindly came along and, and filmed all of those, and they're, they're all up on uh on uh, YouTube, and uh, I, I could put the link into the show notes to that original uh, talk that Stan gave us, uh, but yeah, check out uh, Stu Russell's uh, collection of uh, stuff he's got up there, because there's some really interesting things. I'll put the, the link up on in the show notes. Fantastic, Dave. Uh, I think, you know, just need to pull up a bit here, too, and just... Um acknowledge the incredible work that you have done, not only with the forum, but now with these podcasts. And you're telling us this is number 150. Uh, it is. It's incredible. You know, this is, there's so much information, uh, wouldn't you agree, guys, that would have mm. just gone into the ether that would never have been recorded. You know, uh, at least the stuff's down there. It's down for all time. There's there's a hell of a lot of you know, missing links and pieces of the puzzle that we you know were previously not available that due to your... Uh, enthusiasm and passion for what you're doing is now there. So um, just on behalf of all the, not only the aviation enthusiasts, I guess, in New Zealand, but also the, the generations of the future who are going to refer to this stuff someday. And the, just thanks so much for the for the huge amount you put into it. I know from some of your emails and some of the, your activities that you're up all bloody night sometimes doing this stuff. I, mean, I don't know when you have a sleep. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge effort and you know nothing beats passion you've got, you got truckloads of that my friend so thank you very much for everything well that's my pleasure and uh, I really um, you know I'm grateful for the acknowledgement that you just gave me it's uh, it, it, it's it's such fun and um, it, it really actually when you start 
interviewing veterans, it becomes addictive because the, the more you meet, the more you learn and the more you want to meet because you know you'll learn more. And they're, they're amazing people. And uh, everyone in aviation, I mean, um, you know, one of the other people that I have recently interviewed that will come out in a show soon too, uh, Christine Odie. She's a um, Air New Zealand captain on the A320s and, uh, you know, another excellent um, interview with her. So um, they don't have to be old war veterans. No. And, um, you know, they're, they're all, everybody in aviation has got a story to tell and I just love being able to record them and uh, and share them. So, you know, that's my thing really. Fantastic. We'll just keep doing it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and and um, one thing, one other thing I'll say about what I've been doing lately, uh, I, I visited uh, uh, Motet yesterday and actually the day before too, I was there two days in a row. And um, I had a nice close-up look at the Short Sunderland and it's been under restoration for a long time, as most of us know, and it's now got pretty much all of its paint on and it is looking stunning. Really? It, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It looks like a new aircraft now. It's uh, got this lovely gloss sheen to it. It's smooth. It's perfectly done. And the colors are right. It's got that off-white color rather than the, the bright white that it has had for a long time. It's yeah. got gone back to the proper Air Force color. And I just i am so looking forward to now, in, in a couple of months' time, all of that scaffolding is going to be peeled off it and... Um, you'll be able to see the entire aircraft, and it is going to just blow people away because it's better now than it's ever been in my entire life. Wow. Yes. Yeah. It's something to look forward to, eh? It's, um... Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yep. That's great. And it's going to be rolled inside uh, into the into the big hangar, and the um, solar will be rolled. The plan at the moment is the solar will be rolled out at the same time, and it'll go under the scaffolding covers and um and it'll get the same process with a, a an overhaul and new paint so i can't remember dave is the is the have they got a system worked out where they can accommodate them both eventually inside and the and the dc3 or is there something always going to have well, to be out at this point no um the they can fit inside mm. uh, technically mm. the the two but the two big ones the two flying boats yep. the dc the dc3 is now in the other hangar which is the belfast hangar i think they call it yep. um and it's it's actually been um uh cleaned up as well and and um getting ready for a display but from from what's been told to me it looks like that's going to stay in that hangar and make a display around it in that hangar because right. that's the restoration hangar but um They've actually restored almost all the aircraft. Yeah, yeah, that makes that uh, makes sense. Yeah, so it'll it'll become it'll become a display probably in the front, and they'll have space in the back for um, restoring yeah. stuff. But uh, so everything will be under cover. Um, there's also talk that there might be an extension put out the back of the the big hangar uh, in terms of a you know a lightweight structure, but uh, more it'll be better than the scaffolding they've got now. Yeah. But it'll be it, it'll. You know, it won't be a new building as such. A carport so, kind of structure, a massive carport kind yeah, of structure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, anything's better than, you know, uh, I, I used to go up there as a kid in the 1970s. I was um, I was attending block courses in Auckland, and uh, that's when I first started going out to Motat, and, you know, you'd go out to me on the road and, and have a look around, and, and, and it was fascinating, but it was a bit sad at the same time because, you know, we just, everybody wondered when those aircraft were, you know, would get undercover, and knew pretty much what would happen if they didn't. And, uh, you know, just I think 
I think the aviation section there now, that that, that Miola Road end is the is the um, jewel in the crown of that whole MOTAC complex. I know they struggle in some other areas a bit, and they're going through all sorts of uh, internal problems, um, you know, which just have growing pains and structures and things. But I think the aviation setup is just uh, it's a wonderful success story now. It's I just love that place. Yeah, it is. It's world class now, mm. and. Um, every time I visit, and I go up every few months or, or maybe six months at a time sometimes, and every time I visit, I just notice things that are better and better. And they've got a lot of plans in place for, for MOTAT as a whole. There's uh, various things that are happening at the moment, um, proposals to the council. And, and I think that entire area of Western Springs, uh, all that council area with the zoo and the um, – the stadium and everything all, all around the area it might be in for a big uh, shake up and change and and all fairly positive in the future. Good. But that's great. We'll just have to just have to wait and see what happens. But uh, I mean, honestly, you know, Motad is a world class aviation museum now. Um, as you say, a lot of the a lot of the other parts of it haven't quite caught up yet. But I think in the future, you know, it, it's all positive. So mm. good, cool. Um, yeah. So. When planning this uh, this sort of panel style, the forum episode, uh, I had a few other ideas, and um, one of them is uh, just to ask the panel, "What's on your mind?" Um, this is an opportunity to raise anything that you think needs to be pointed out to the public, whether it's good or bad, positive or negative, political or legislative, or you know, highlighting um, safety concerns or anything to do with um, across the whole spectrum of, of Kiwi aviation. So, does anyone have anything that? Um, is on your mind that you want to talk about? Well, uh, I'll lead away here while the others are just uh, um, think. I'm sure they'll have something there. Uh, I, I just think that we're at a bit of a crossroads now when it comes to uh, museums. You know, a lot of the museums around New Zealand, and I'm not talking about the RNZAF Museum, I'm talking about a lot of the other museums that were started by small groups and societies and have grown into quite big things. Um, they need to understand that they need to engage the wider community going forward. I know there's, I think there's two camps, and I've seen this in a lot of places, in a number of places uh, that I've come across. You've got your uh, boffins and your enthusiasts who like to beaver away in a hangar and, and work on aircraft and, and, and do that sort of stuff, and it becomes like a kind of giant men's shed for um, for aeroplanes and, 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 you know, people to get together and that's all very important but there's a wider thing too and i think you know the real success stories of the museums that i've seen around the world open themselves up to uh, much more than that they are basically if you like aviation themed convention venues uh you know you've only got to go to um, eaa oshkosh in the museum there and see how that massive hangar transforms into a magnificent you know conference and convention venue uh with an aviation backdrop um of course the rnzaf museum um, recognised this years ago and they've been forever running uh, functions and more recently after the earthquakes they've, they've uh, expanded that brief out considerably that they host the orchestra there and I think that's incredible because um, you know you're getting a hell of a lot of people that are that are being exposed to that collection and that history and that environment that may not ever have gotten round to, uh, to visiting those collections so I think it's all very 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 positive. Um, I think Classic Flyers and Tauranga is another great example. Um, its structure is such that Andrew Gormley, who had the vision for that in the first place, is you know very progressive and proactive. Um, but I have noticed in other places that I've visited uh, a bit of reticence from some of the um, some of the toilers 
uh, to, you know, flash garden parties. And, you know, there's a wee bit of us and them there. And I think that's got to go. I think if museums and these environments are going to um, survive into the future and, and, and engage the young people of today and their kids and that going forward, they have to be inc- inc- incredibly interactive, uh, very tactile, and they've got to offer more than just, you know, dusty planes and a shed kind of thing. So, you know, I, I'd just encourage everybody who's involved in, in, the, in this movement of the country to think about that and to embrace a whole heap of other opportunities that, that exist, you know, around this whole business of, um, you know, preserving aviation history. I would agree with you wholeheartedly on that. It's all about telling a story. Mm-hmm. People want to hear the stories. They don't want to see just relics. They've got to have the, have the story, and it's got to be in their language. It's the, the way that they communicate. And, yeah, modern, um, you know, I guess the modern generation, um, they communicate quite differently to the way that people have communicated in the past. It's very visual, very tactile, mm. things like that. So, um, yeah, you see those examples that you mentioned there, they're pretty impressive. I was in um, Wigram uh, two or three weeks ago on my way down to the West Coast, uh, dropped through there, and um, we had a little bit of a tour around the back uh, the back shed, and they have um, one of their Huey helicopters there is being used for um, kids' parties, yeah. birthday parties. You go yeah. in there and kids get in their overalls and stuff, and they can they actually have these big sort of crash pads outside the helicopter and they can jump out of the helicopter and all sorts of cool stuff like that. And I thought, yeah, that's cool. That's 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 really good way of um, of getting the engagement of the next generation. And I think that that's it, it's unorthodox, but it's cool. And um, yeah, at Classic Flyers, you have the playground there, which has got bits of aeroplanes to climb on and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, that's that's really good for catching um, younger people at their formative years. It's um, it's the way we're going to have to have a look, eh? Absolutely. And, you know, why not, you know, hire your venue out for somebody who wants to pay you two or 3000 or 4000 or whatever um, to hold their wedding there? You know, why, why not take advantage of that and expose the collection that you've got and the history that you've got to to their guests and also, you know, collect enough money to pay, uh, you know, your insurance probably for the year on the way through or something like that. I mean, just there's a lot of opportunities there. I think people need to be reasonably broad-minded and open-minded about um, you know, how those opportunities are, you know, uh, capitalised on. Yeah, agree. Totally agree. Well, has anyone else uh, got anything else on their mind? Al? Oh, no, I... I guess I, I look at some of the ways that aviation is reported in New Zealand, and I sort of, ah, yep. uh, you know, you you wring your hands a little bit. You think, well, why is why is a little event in airfield? You know, this, maybe it's the websites that that I go to for news that um, that have, you know, they call it clickbait. You know, there's, there's something something happens around the world, and you don't have to read too much into it to say that, oh, okay, that's that's nothing to do with New Zealand or. Um, or if you know if things are reported, they people, you know, we we used to criticise people that evacuate airplanes dragging their bags and belongings behind them. Now we have those people, and also the people that like to videotape it all, right. and um, you know, an evacuation or what have you, or some significant piece of news. The um, the news media tends to go to those people first for their for their stories, and, and of course that person that provides that that footage also gets interviewed, and. Um, you know the news. The news. The the facts of that story often unravel pretty quickly if if there was any facts at all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's probably nothing. Yeah, I think these days everyone, everyone, everyone has a phone. Everyone has a camera on them. Um, I can only imagine the things that happened in the world before everyone had a, a smartphone with a camera on it. Because you know the sort of stuff you see videotape these days. Um, it's incredible what you know dash cams and what things like that. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, those those incidents would have surely happened in the past as well. But yeah, we never heard about them because they are just mm. they don't propagate around the world so quickly with the technology. So, and if we had heard about them, you would have heard from the official source about what actually happened yeah. through through the proper channels rather than just some person on the street who's interpreted their own way and put their own spin on it and then gone straight to the media. I remember a few years back. Um... You know, we always have these aviation commentators, aviation experts on the news and what have you. And TV3, I think it was, had Joanna Hunkin, one of their reporters, Joanna Hunkin, I'm not, not sure where she is now, but um, her dad, Captain Ted Hunkin, he was Cathay, the Cathay captain who retired back to Auckland. And <clears throat> us guys back then as, as Pacific Blue, we used him as a sort of external auditor to sit in the flight deck on a number of flights, several flights, and just observe and just... Um, get a completely outside view of of our airline and, and how we operated and yeah so he was the father of, of joanna hunkin this, this tv reporter so for a while there tv3 used him as their um go-to person and with all his experience as a very very senior cathay captain um right yeah the news that was reported was was absolutely spot on and it was um yeah um i'm not sure i, I imagine ted still in Auckland somewhere, but yeah, he was he was a breath of fresh air in terms of media reporting of, of events, either in New Zealand or, or overseas, yeah. Speaking of the media, did you guys catch the story out this week of the elderly Chinese passenger in her yes. 80s who was boarding a plane? I think she was in China. Uh, she got halfway up the steps, and she, so she decided to throw nine coins into the engine for good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my that's definitely going to bring some good luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do. And a yeah. five-hour delay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I'm just trying to struggle. You know, she's obviously clearly not an aviation-minded person, but I'm just uh, trying to even remove any mouse of you know any ounce of aviation kind of knowledge or understanding. I'm just struggling to think how anybody would think that that would be good for an yeah, engine. You yeah. know, I was, I was thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> You know, typically, typically people do lose a bit of intelligence at airports, whether yeah. it's stress of you know traveling and pressure and noise and I don't know, but um, you do see some incredibly dumb things happen at airports. But yeah, that, that really has to, you know, yeah, like you say, what, what was the what was the, the the clever thinking behind that? Don't know why she was even carrying coins onto the aircraft. Maybe she thought that once it took off, you had to keep feeding some sort of a meter on there to keep it in the air. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, talking about the stress at the airport, I think I'm going to be more stressed now if I start seeing little old Chinese ladies boarding in front of me because if they start throwing coins around like that, yeah. it's not going to be good. <laughs> That's the good thing so, with, with an aerobridge. You know, people often don't even know what type of aircraft they're boarding. Exactly. You, you just you don't oh, yeah. see it. Yeah. Don't fly the, yeah, but, fly the passenger tube, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but Yeah, but we don't have that at some airports like Hamilton. <laughs> you have to go out on the tarmac. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll move on to the, the next section of the program, which uh, I've entitled Great Escapes. And it's basically uh, if you've been escaping through anything like a film or TV or, or radio or podcast or 
book um, about aviation. Has there been anything lately that you guys have uh, gotten into that has, has taken your fancy and you think is um, worth mentioning? Yes, I've got one. Um, I'm just working my way at the moment through B. Dawson's book on La Fala Bay. Oh, yeah, great. Um, the the story of the RNZAF base in Fiji, and um, it is utterly awesome. Um, she's also done the book, of course, on Hobsonville and Wigram, um, yeah. and this is sort of the next one in the series. And uh, as with those previous ones, it is really has has a lot of good um, personal stories in it, um, beautiful photographs, um, maps and stuff. It really helps um, sort of get a picture of it. And I, I sort of really get the impression that, um, that that base was quite a cruisy place to be in, in that stay. Uh, yeah. When you hear about all the social events and the, the various things, um, getting stationed to paradise, really, it's um, – it really gives a, quite a feel for it, so um, can highly recommend that book. Um, I understand that they are a little bit scarce to come by, but uh, I got my copy at the RNZAF Museum when I went through uh, there a few weeks ago and uh, absolutely loving it, yep. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's a brilliant book. So, anyone else? Oh. Yeah, I, I haven't. I um, Recently, I, I have read a, a couple of those... Um, Supposed Haynes manuals. Uh, a re- good one recently was the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. Yeah, these, oh, yeah, these yeah. Haynes manuals now obviously don't cover just motor vehicles anymore. But um, yeah, it's a very, very good read about the the nitty gritty of how the the Battle of Britain Memorial flights operate and run and the machines and okay. yeah. So you're waiting so. on a Haynes manual for a Bristol? <laughs> I've got enough Bristol manuals, by gee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have one of my on my shelf there. I've got I've got a book about um, being a bit of an engine, an engine geek. The um, Pratt and Whitney Wasp Major, the the R forty three sixty, and and the author of that, Graham White. I just looked at the book earlier, and it looks like a brick on the shelf, and it's six hundred pages, all about that one model of engine, and how he put six hundred pages together about that one engine, and then convinced a publisher to publish it. It's, uh, it's an incredible <laughs> book, and yeah. Well, um, I I haven't done too much reading lately either myself, but uh, I I listen to a lot of podcasts these days rather than um, spend time looking at a book. And uh, I tell you, a couple of podcasts that have really um, t- taken my fancy in the last few weeks. Uh, extended podcast from Britain, uh, episode seventy and seventy one. The Falklands War specials, and uh, they um, they cover basically the the aviation side of the Falklands War, and oh, they were so good. They had um, they had a, a two Harrier pilots and a and a, a Lynx a Sea Lynx pilot uh, interviewed on there. Uh, one of the Harry pilot one of the Harrier pilots was uh, Sharky Ward, very famous uh, and somewhat outspoken pilot from those days and um, I can highly highly recommend uh, you downloading and, and listening to those two episodes they're, they're just brilliant really really interesting really intriguing the um, I had no idea honestly how close it was to Britain completely stuffing that entire thing up because they were so um, so limited in, in what they had for for aviation 
cover. Uh, you know, they only had I think there was twenty one Harriers there. Yeah. Out of the, you know, and and they lost their Chinooks too. Yeah. Which is I mean, the thing. And and it's also amazing at what, how much that they were doing. Uh, the the roles that doing the Lynx was doing stuff that, you know, you you just wouldn't imagine. So I mean, definitely have a listen because they're just really really detailed, interesting, um, fascinating stories. Have have any of you um, listened to any uh, Wings Over New Zealand shows that you that have taken you for you know lately? Have you uh, sort of? What was the last one? I uh, the one. I'm, I'm, I'm not a um, I'm not a massive listener to to anything really, <laughs> um, but but but, now, but there was one while ago and I just can't remember which one it was. It might have been one of the ones you had Paul on, I think, from Pioneer. What was that? Um, a while back, I scrolled back through some back uh, copies. It was one I wanted to catch, but just oh, um, yep. on on um, uh, if you're looking for a mini escape at the moment, there's quite a good thing doing the rounds I see today on Facebook and, and YouTube probably too. Have you um, bloke seen it? It's a um, it's a time lapse of the assembly from basically from from scratch of a Trent a Rolls Royce Trent Aero engine. Have you seen that? It's it's no, um, no. doing the rounds. It's quite good. Yeah. So, but if, you know, if you've got a short attention span, they speed it up. It only takes a few minutes. So that, <laughs> it's good for people like that. But the other, um, if you're talking about escapes, what about the bloke who's uh, escaped in the P51B to fly it from the USA to um, to uh, Legends in the UK? She's a, yes. what is it, about a five thousand mild transit in his immersion suit with a number of stops of course for fuel and comfort along the way but um that would they reckon it's a pretty uncomfortable kind of a uh a mission that one well it sounds like doesn't it yeah, so really. he's, he's flying it he's flying it yeah but they didn't put i didn't realize it no they didn't put this one on a box they're flying it and i think it left uh i think it left about i think it left either thursday or friday this week and uh yeah yeah. Talking to the guys that have done um, big oceanic crossings like that, apparently the tr- the thing is is that your hearing becomes particularly uh, intensified that you start to listen to all the little no- noises that the engine makes. And you, it seems to sort of get uh, heightened when you're over large <laughs> quantities of freezing water. Oh, you can you you know it's not hard to sort of uh, imagine that. If you guys had been offered the back seat, say. When Tim Wallace's Avenger was, you know, doing the Trans-Tasman crossing via the, you know, the, the islands, Lord Howe and Norfolk, etc. Um, if you'd been offered a free seat in the back of that thing, would you have gone? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah, yep. sure would. Yep. Yes, yes. Oh, yep, great. I would well, have okay, right. Okay. Oh, well, I'm the wimp. Because they're not, they're not particularly <laughs> big hot, those. <laughs> yeah. you, I mean, I, I think I'd probably still prefer it if I had, had a twin engine thing, but I mean, if yes. it, I, I reckon, um, yeah, I'd quite like to do um, to be involved in a transoceanic ferry in some form, but um, yeah. yeah, have to be the right aeroplane and, uh, and the right crew behind it, I think. Would you want? Would you want to have a bit of a sort of a look through the you know the latest maintenance <laughs> report on it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the sort of thing you'd look at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it would be incredible. It's one of those things would be incredible if, if once you've done it. I was just I'm thinking about doing. You know, when we were talking about putting the show together, Dave was asking about it. Um, it's it's a wonderful thing, aviation, to be around. When I think back over the years, just from my kind of casual. Um, association with it. Some of those incredible types I've had the privilege to have a bit of a fly in. And you were talking about um, 
uh, one of the Grumman's earlier on, I remember years ago in Auckland, we, we did about seven hours in the old Grumman Goose DFC that was based there at the time. Um, it had been used in that surf uh, dishwashing powder, uh, laundry powder oh, yeah. commercial. And we were doing trips with our listeners in our radio station up to the Bay of Islands. So I managed to fly on that and actually flew on a Grumman Goose back um, past Whanuapai in the circuit with the Southern Cross replica, looking out the window at the Southern Cross replica. So that was pretty memorable. Uh, and then, of course, there's, then there's a Catalina um, when Peter Jackson's, um, oh, what was the machine that came out? Um, the F2B, the Bristol F2B. The first one, oh, the yeah, one that yeah. was built by the airline pilot in the States, they brought it out for one of the first Amarca shows, and that was based here in Ashburton for a while. I was very lucky to, at short notice, get offered a, a seat in the back of that thing, facing backwards, um, and, and, and the likes of the Catalina and the usual things, but, you know, the B-17 and um, Lynette Sicoli's Stearman, um, and just a whole heap of really cool aeroplanes, and you start to add them up after a while, and it's, 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 a, pretty, it's a pretty nice sort of a collection of memories that you have and uh, it's, it's a great movement to be a part of isn't it if you hang around long oh, enough all sorts of opportunities you know come your way oh yeah yep, definitely yep. yep so what's your most memorable flight al or flights oh uh, gee um yeah when, when you asked me what that one was I, I tend to think first solo on my air force wings course yep. uh, it wasn't my first solo by any stretch i, I had about 400 hours when i was Arahakia, but um, but all the all the years and years and years of work and hoping and planning and um, to get picked for that wings course and actually um, everything everything that goes you know like I say I used to gee I used to cycle out to Wigram and watch those uh, wings course students doing their first solos and what have you um, yeah probably probably air trainer first solo and. Um, Ultimately, it wasn't a success for me on the, on that wings course, but it did set me up pretty well with um, the training and and um, knowledge that I got from those people. So yeah, probably um, yeah. Then there's other things like your first the first time you get paid to fly an airplane. That's that's pretty special. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first time you become a captain of of an airplane with people on the back. Um, yeah, there's there's many, but I, th- I, th- I think if I was to yeah, probably pilot officer marshal and that. CT4 out of a haki would probably be the most memorable for all the reasons that you know it wasn't just it wasn't just a you know a 10 or 12 hours of flying training it was um, probably 20 years of, of hoping for yeah yeah probably. yeah right. Right. yeah terrific I understand that sure and how about you Bruce oh memorable flights um, probably the one that sort of well, there's actually was a couple. It's only from a few years ago, flying the adventurer, and it was actually in the same sort of same sort of episode. Um, I had was running a SAA training course down in Hastings, uh, probably two years ago, um, middle of winter, um, and I took the adventurer down to Hastings then. Um, and I was going to stay a week in between the two courses and, and do some holidayish stuff. Probably the um, the first one is the was a flight I did uh, one Friday afternoon. I'd sort of had a bit of a grotty week, had been recovering from a cold and things that I'd got on the first training course that I'd run. Uh, spent a week to recover, but by Friday I was actually uh, fit enough to to go flying again. And I had the aeroplane there sitting at Hastings, so I, I went out and it was. Uh, late afternoon, um, 
the sun was sort of setting. Well, it wasn't setting, but it's sort of about three uh, thirty-ish. I got airborne out of, out of Hastings, and I just sort of headed off down to the south. And um, one of the things about flying around the Hawke's Bay is that it has the most amazing hills there. It has these sort of row after row of these sort of razorback sort of ridges. It sort of looks like it's um, almost like a piece of corrugated cardboard. All these sort of um, these sort of parallel ridges. And with the sun on the low angle, it just looked absolutely glorious, absolutely dead calm. Um, chugged up to about three and a half thousand foot and uh, headed off down towards Waipukarau. Uh, didn't go all the way down there, but um, went down there and then flew back along following one of the rivers, uh, the Titaikuri River, I think it was, around the back of Tamata Peak and then back into, into Hastings. And that was an absolutely cracker of a flight, um, probably one of the nicest flights I've ever been on. Um, that was that was really quite quite uh, quite a, a memorable one. Um, but a few days later, I was uh, flying the aeroplane back, um, and coming back from Hastings, you would I, I chose to fly up the Mohaka River, um, and you come across uh, the the plateau there, um, up on the height of the the Napier Taupo Road, um, Rangitaiki. And uh, left Hastings, and it was a another frosty morning. It was lovely and clear and still. And uh, I thought, oh yeah, this is going to be an absolutely cra- absolute cracker of flight. I had checked the weather, and it was sort of showing a little bit muckiness around the Waikato. So I thought, oh well, I better get up there early, um, before it deteriorates. But um, yeah, basically, yeah, sort of flying up the Mohaka, and it was absolutely clear following the river and then you make uh, a right turn um, part way up there to to join over the Rangitaiki Plains and then go across to Taupo from there where I was going to uh, to refuel and uh, just as I got to that sort of turning point there was this big squall and you could see this cloud basically come building up very rapidly over the, the ridge ahead of me and um, it was getting get hammered by the turbulence and stuff I was getting quite it was getting very rough and the cloud base suddenly started to come down and I was stuck there and I was watching my my altimeter and things and I realized that I was getting down to sort of about 700 foot AGL at that point in time so I thought all oh, right I need to to get emergency plans going here so I put the airplane into bad weather configuration and I um one of the cool things I'd done and, and I'm really pleased I'd done it is that um, in order to familiarise myself with where to turn off the Mohaka, because um, there's a number of different turnings there. If you get the wrong one, it can can be difficult. I'd actually had a look at it in Google Earth in three-dimensional view, and I knew that uh, Rangitaiki Airfield, exactly where it was in relation to me, which was very helpful, because at that point in time, I was getting hammered around. I couldn't actually read my charts um, at that point. So bad weather configuration, and I knew that if I just scoot around the end of this hill, Rangitaiki Airfield would be there. And so I scooted around there and uh, did a low-altitude rejoin overhead and, and put the aeroplane on the ground safely at, Rang- at Rangitaiki. And um, it was cold and miserable there, And uh, but I was really glad that I was on the ground at that point The because, um, yeah, the squall came through and it was quite stormy there for about 40 minutes. So I sat the aeroplane on the ground there for 40 minutes um, or so. Um, and then I flew it from – it had cleared up enough from there to fly it into Taupo, um, got it into Taupo there. Um, 
and thereafter, by the time I refueled at Taupo, the weather had closed into the north, so I ended up leaving the aeroplane at Taupo and, and catching a ride back home and picking the aeroplane up a week later from Taupo. But um, what that did, the, the the episode of that flight actually gave us a lot of confidence, first of all, in the aeroplane, um, the fact that, yeah, this is the aeroplane I built myself, and sometimes I'm, I'm a bit worried about it uh, because I know of all the particular failure modes of it. But um, the fact, yeah, I've made appropriate plans and the aeroplane was handled it well and I handled the stress and the pressure of it, made good decisions at the time, put the aeroplane in safely uh, in adverse situation and I thought, yeah, that's good. That that really builds the confidence from there. So while it was memorable in a sort of unpleasant way, I think it was actually quite a positive thing to actually do that. I could actually build a lot of confidence from that. If you hadn't, if you hadn't studied that three-dimensional map and you had known exactly where that Rangitaki airfield was, what do you think your plan B would have been on that situation? I was looking for a precautionary landing into some of the paddocks underneath because it's a high country station. It's yeah. um, there are flat paddocks and there is actually sort of bushy airstrips around there as well. And I, and okay. those would have been um, the next choice probably at that point. And that's just looking out and trying to see where I could do a precautionary landing because um, with the deteriorating conditions, if I'd still been flying sort of 10, 15 minutes later, I think it would have been a real different story. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, memorable for all the other reasons. Yeah. 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 But one thing it is, though, I managed to tick off uh, landing on the highest um, published airstrip in the North Island. So that's at least one thing that I could put on the, on, on the chart that I'd actually done that. Through landing at Rangitaiki. I could well, add to that, but my another memorable one. I've lowest. I've landed on the lowest airfield in the world. Where's that? Uh, the Dead Sea in Israel. Ah, okay. Oh, landing below sea level. Yeah, twelve hundred forty-six feet below sea level. Touch and go. Wow. <laughs> what was that in? In a Cessna one seven two. All right. Yeah. Oh, wow. We did. We did the overhead rejoin at sea level just because we could. <laughs> that, that kind of blows your mind really doesn't it yeah, yeah the poor old altimeter as we touched down I, I had an instructor with me so um, just as we were climbing out he took control so I could get the uh, photo of the altimeter three needle altimeter all wound behind zero yeah it was uh... oh, wow <laughs> oh, brilliant <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah I don't know if you want to hear about my most memorable flights but uh, uh, I should probably bore them with bore you with them um, of course, I've been quite lucky to have a few interesting flights, and uh, as you'll probably all know, the, probably the one that stands out in my mind most now is the Spitfire flight, which uh, Doug Brooker very kindly took me up in, um, from Ardmore on the day of one of our forum meets up there. Um, completely surprised me with it, and it was just mind-blowing. Mm. Just mind-blowing. And... Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'll just never forget that. But, uh, you know, coming very close to that, back in 1993, or 90, yeah, 93, East, Easter 1993, I uh, had the privilege of flying in the Grumman Avenger from Wigram down to uh, Wanaka, and I was in the, uh, the turret, and just outside of uh, where, where I was sitting in the turret, I, Next to us was the P-40K with uh, the late Tom Middleton flying very close formation for part of it. And then he'd fly off and he'd do some aerobatics. And then he'd come back and uh, 
get close in again and I could see the huge smile on his face and I was smiling back at him and uh, it was just a, a magic flight. We, yeah, that would we be. Buzzed, we, we buzzed a few airfields on the way down there, including Ashburton um, and uh, uh, Tekapo and somewhere else. Um, I can't remember what the other one was, but um, yeah, we did some nice low passes and... Uh, and at one point, we even flew through a rainbow, which I didn't even know was possible. But uh, the the Avenger pilot saw a rainbow, and he he sort of veered off and um, flew down, and we went through it. And I saw all the colours come over the that big glass canopy of, of the Avenger. Yeah. So uh, I had no idea you could do that because it's, that's not what happens when you're in a car. But um, it was incredible. And of course, when we finally touched down at uh, at Wanaka, we had. The reason I was in the aircraft is I was on the Air Force team that painted the aircraft into its uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force colours as Plonky, mm-hmm. and so this was this was its delivery back to uh, Wanaka after the repaint, and so we got a royal welcome really. And because I had been on the team doing the paint job, um, you know, I, <laughs> I I just got treated like a, a VIP. You know, it was amazing, and I got invited to their um, private party that night, which was basically Tim Wallace and all of his crew, uh, all of his um, workers and, and mechanics and everything, and his pilots, and uh, something like 20 fighter races and their wives and Good me. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and it was all put on because the day after we were opening the New Zealand Fighter Pilots Museum, it was the opening day. And uh, so here's me standing like a, what was I, probably 22? Oh, and um, I was standing at a table with uh, at, at a bar, Lena, drinking beer with Colin Gray, our top fighter ace, Des Scott, um, who was the youngest group captain in the war, and uh, Bob Spurdle, who was a Battle of Britain fighter ace. Um, so the, these three are all aces and their wives, and they're all asking me about what I'm doing in the Air Force, and they were so interested, and I'm like, you guys are all legends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, all, and all around, you know, there was there was legends everywhere. Well, I can see why that would be a pretty cool sort of an occasion for you. Was that um, was that Rex Davy that would have been flying the? Uh, Avenger? I think it was. Yeah. yeah, I think it was because when it flew into Wigram, um, when it flew into Wigram, it was uh, Mark Hanna brought it in. Yep. And um, but it wasn't him that flew it down there, and so it must have been Rex, I think, because. Mm. At, at the time, I I, what, I don't even know if I got the name at the time, but it must have been him because I know it wasn't Mark. So, yeah, and Tom Middleton, you mentioned there, he was a great guy. I I first mm. um, ran into him. Uh, he was a, an instructor for the uh, South Canterbury Aero Club at one stage. There, that was going way way back, and and um, and I was working for the radio station down there at the time. We were supposed to be doing some promotional thing and I had my tape recorder because you had tape recorders with actual tape in them in those days uh, in the front and everything and he said have you flown before I said oh yeah I went solo with the, you know, at Ashburton some years ago he said right well you're flying then he grabbed the tape recorder off me he stuck that in his lap he, and he said you're flying so I had to do everything uh, which was really really cool he was a nice guy a good bloke good guy yes, yep. he was yeah I'll say yeah it was. And I, I remember actually a couple, well, one occasion particularly, uh, I ran into him at an air show. He wasn't flying at this particular time in this particular aeroplane. Uh, it was one of Tim's Spitfires. And he said, look, we've just got to stop here for a minute. I just want to listen to that. <laughs> and he, would, he, he completely pulled the conversation up just so he could savour the sounds. Of that uh, of that Spitfire, and I've never ever forgotten that. You know, he used to fly them quite a bit, but he never 
passed up the opportunity just to, you know, uh, stop and immerse himself in that experience. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so... Just so uh, getting near the end here because we've sort of run on a lot longer than I expected we would. But um, is it still so, is it still the same day that we started? I'm not sure. It's <laughs> <getting> close. <laughs> all, all I know is I really need to go to the loose. <laughs> pilot relief so, tube. That's what you need. One of those pilot relief tubes. <laughs> I'll get that for the next show. <laughs> so, um, have have you guys uh, got any um, shout outs? Uh, any sort of uh, projects or clubs or events or uh, aviation businesses that you just want to mention? Any promotions? i just got one thing to mention um, coming up, um, which I think we really do need to promote. Uh, on September the 9th and 10th, this is actually down in um, Peter's Patch, uh, Rangitata Island. Um, the Brody family are having a fly-in to celebrate 100 years of Brody family um Aviation at Rangitata Island, four generations there, and they're they're really hoping to get uh, at least 100 aeroplanes there to celebrate the 100 years. So um, I'm probably not going to be able to make it down that far, but um, certainly if uh, anyone's in the patch, um, definitely I would highly suggest you go and uh, drop into Rangitata Island on that weekend to to support the guys because they're an awesome family. They're all seriously cool aviation people they live it they breathe it and uh it would be awesome to support them yep totally i totally agree with that um i'm planning to have uh russell and ross brody onto the on the show uh probably uh early august um they're going to come on and and talk about that when it's uh, a bit closer to the event but um it's going to be amazing and um we were actually looking into it ross and i were talking about are there any other families that were four generations of uh, pilots like like they are? Uh, Ross's great grandfather was a World War One pilot, trained at Wigram, mm-hmm. and then uh, his grandfather, uh, his father, and him are all pilots. And uh, I did a bit of um, googling around, and and I found two others, and one of them actually happens to be a member of the Lockheed family, as in the Lockheed family. Not really. So. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and he's a he's a pilot now um, mm. with the, I think from memory with the Air Force and in, in the USA. So, um, but yeah, the, it's a it's a rare thing I'm sure that to have four generations who have all been pilots. So, um, and this is this is going to be a great event if they can get the hundred aircraft there. And there's going to be some very interesting aircraft there too. I think uh, there's a few plans for some very interesting aircraft. So, um, I would love to get down to it myself. I'm, I'm actually going to keep an eye on the um, grabber seats just in case because yeah. I'd love to go out there and cover it for the show. Yeah. Definitely will be worth it, eh? Oh, definitely. Shall we fly down, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, if we got that Beach 18, there'd be four seats in oh, the back and you could buy one of them. Pilatus Porter, mate. Pilatus Porter. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a, I'm a Porter fan. Oh, you're a Porter <laughs> fan. All oh, right. Yeah. Got to have a Pilatus Porter. That's that's the Win Lotto airplane. Okay, all right. Oh, well, good luck for Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. Well, are there any other shout-outs apart from the Lotto? <laughs> I'm hoping to um, follow Graham through across to Reno. Ah. With his his Yak three, the Omaka based Yak threes off to off to the Reno races. So um, I know there's a huge contingent of. Uh, Enthusiasts from Ardmore and uh, Anamarka that are, are going across. So I'm just waiting to hear back on some leave and, and then make a plan from that. But yeah, probably I think the New Zealand's 
first and only Reno race pilot in aircraft, I, I suspect. And, and he so doesn't, even, doesn't even have to risk his own engine, does he? He's had a sponsor, he went on the, the reconditioning outfit over there of, uh, is it Yancey's or who's that? Yes, it is Yancey's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they've um, built, built him a race engine. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, so he, he, he unbolts. Uh, is this one, is this right, guys? Is it Bruce L? Would you know he unbolts, mm. he unbolts his, uh, his own engine, they put this thing in the front and he races, and then I guess he takes it out at the end and gives it back to them. I, I, I don't yes, know that's right, works, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, he, oh, he, in oh. fact, he said that was really the clincher, wasn't it? That was the donation of that of that engine, that race engine, that really, you know, tipped him in the, yes, I'll, I'll go and do it sort of mm. Mm. So, so is he going to be the first New Zealander to ever fly at Reno in the races? I suspect he probably will be. I um, would say so. Yeah. First time I've seen a ZK airplane at Reno, certainly. Mm. Yeah, I know the Thunder Mustang boys wanted to do it um, years ago, and they just they never never did. But uh, it'll be great to see uh, Graham get over there and um, get get in get into it. I mean, fantastic. We'll have to definitely be following that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's definitely one to watch. I mean, I think that there's been a numerous sort of syndicates over the years who've sort of um, sort of had the dreams of getting to Reno and building their unlimited class races of whatever type, but um, it's nothing that's ever happened so far. But I think someone's got to be first, and maybe in the future we may see uh, an unlimited race team or something going over there. Um Possibly the easiest way, if you are wanting to do a proper campaign, there would be to start at something like the Formula One racing, um, but Formula One air racing or the biplanes or something, or, or even T6s. But uh, I think that's something that w- that's really would be good to, to see a New Zealand team doing stuff like that. So maybe following on from the America's Cup, we can go and take Reno. <laughs> so is he is he is um, is he in the unlimited? Uh, I think it, what, silver class. Um, it will be silver or bronze. Uh, right. I was, uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I'd be a brave man that takes on Steve Hinton Jr. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think right, it. Might, yeah. I think the yak might take a little bit more work before it gets up to to unlimited gold. That stage. But, exactly. But um, but yeah, I, I think that the, the the thing is with the the air racing is that you can actually start at a number of different levels depending on as so you've got as so these other classes the the the, the formula one the biplanes the sport racing uh the t6s and then you've got the different levels of unlimited class so um yeah the logistics and things will be the big issue if you're taking a team there but I don't know. I mean, it can't be any worse than an America's Cup logistics, surely. Right. Um, well, so does, does that mean you could qualify to get lots of money from the government, like the America's Cup? Or? Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had a brief experience with um, some people that were involved in Reno years ago, the Dwelly family. Uh, Tom was a Sea Fury owner and, and racer. He was the father, and Ken, his son, um, he was he was a United States Air Force pilot and and um, you know flew the stealth thing whatever the hell that's called you know the the black thing. Yeah, he was one of those. He was one of those. He's a pilot for one of those. But his hobby um, was um, was aircraft, and they they purchased a, a, whole, a large holding of T six spares and they traded as California Texans for a while there. They had a, a T six that they built up out of new old stock parts. And the, that raced in the T6 class. And I, I contacted them 
because I was looking for some bits at the time for my little modest static you know, Harvard project that I had on the go at the time. Well, I, you know, for an outfit that was you know, obviously a very wealthy family and involved in, in, in um, warbird and, and racing aviation at the very sharp end, I couldn't believe how much they bent over backwards. You know, he sold me a rear fuselage. He built a crate himself, you know, with the, in his workshop. Um, he asked me what else I needed, and there was a couple of bits and pieces. He threw in a whole lot of other bits, and I ended up getting this crate um, sent out to New Zealand with this T6 rear fuselage in it and a couple of side panels and all sorts of bits that he'd just thrown in free out of his stock, and it was all immaculately. It was a work of art the way it was all packaged up and screwed down. And uh, so I've never, you know, I've never forgotten you know, just what a, a kind act of generosity um, the Dwelly family, um, you know, offered to some some little hick bloke on the other side of the world puddling around with a, a harbour that was never going to fly. I thought it was wow, uh, pretty yeah. pretty cool, pretty cool sort of a gesture, really. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Well, gents, we should probably uh, wrap this up, and I, I just want to um, just as before closing, I, I just want to say um, to the listeners out there, you know, if you if you enjoy this forum uh, show, then um, you know, let us know. Give us some feedback. Um, tell us what you thought, and tell us if it's too long or too short, or you know what you'd like to hear. Um, ideas for for these panel shows, and um, you know any any sort of feedback, or send in your aviation stories, and and you can even record a a, a, a piece for that we can maybe slot in, or or something like that. Or if, you know, it, this show is open to the forum, and um, you know the the Wings Over New Zealand aviation forum online is uh, is a huge big democratic bunch of people that uh, really um, you know it's the whole community it's the aviation community and that's what I want these shows to be about is inviting people from the forum onto here to have their say and and tell their stories and and that's what it has been tonight I think it's it's been uh, it's been great I've been you know, just sitting back listening to you guys, it's been fantastic. I, I think it's uh, it kind of came together like like I'd hoped. So I, I yeah, hope yeah, you guys feel yeah. the same way. Oh, it's been yeah. a lot of fun there, Dave. Hmm. Yeah, thanks cool. very much, Dave. Yeah, all, all the best for uh, you know episode 151 and beyond. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. So um, to the listeners, uh, get on the on the Wings Over New Zealand forum and and get on the Facebook page, which is the Wings Over New Zealand show. If you look on Facebook for Wings Over New Zealand show and just let us know what you think and um, and uh, we'll be back uh, probably in a week or two with a, with another episode which will be a regular episode and hopefully in the future we'll have more of these forum shows so that's us for tonight, thank you very much Cheers Dave, thank you Cheers guys, Cheers, guys. Cheers, thank, thank you very much, much. Bye bye yeah.